23 of Rankin Review. And this episode, I have a very special guest, Matthew Burgess, who's a very gifted actor from in and around Saskatoon, and he's a very good friend of mine. Uh, we're going to be looking at six ghost movies this week, and uh, they're a really good, really tough list. And I want to start off by saying, um, if you haven't seen any of the six movies we're discussing this week, I encourage you to wait and watch the films before you listen to the reviews because there are some pretty huge spoilers to to come. So, uh, fairly warned. Spoilers and harsh language. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. This is your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. Enjoy the show. All right, well, we're going to call this episode 23 of Rankin Review. I'm just going to jump right into it like that. (laughs) And we're doing Ghosts again, and I have my good friend uh, Matthew Burgess here. Um, Very happy to be here. uh, And thank you for doing this. I know you're a very busy man, and I appreciate it. Uh, What what, what, uh, brought you to the Ghosts? as far as a topic I mean is that your type of horror movies you prefer that over the slice and dice or yeah I think I actually get kind of sick with like stuff I mean unless it's uh, how do I say like something like I mean Kill Bill isn't something that I would say it's almost about ghosts but the amount of gore that's involved in that is like over the top so I can kind of become really uh, block it out or censor it in a way you know yeah. or it's like I can enjoy you just feel desensitized right? yeah exactly uh, but with slasher stuff, it's just like a level below that where I actually don't get to that point, so I feel kind of sick, kind of <laughs> nauseous, and some of them go to like a point of making it look so real and so <laughs> awful that I don't know if I can handle it. But these ones, I like them because like, they, uh, you're just kind of thinking, what, what, well, you're almost like a detective in some of them. Uh, atmosphere is so important to ghost stories, um, and I think the selection that you have here, this is more of an A-list class of ghost stories. I think that, for me, for the most part, I like I like all of yeah. these movies. Yeah. I mean, uh, some are better than others, but overall, I'm going to be positive <laughs> about all of these movies. Um, I don't necessarily believe in ghosts, but I think there's a part of me that really wants to, mm-hmm. and there's a part of me that's really like fascinated by the idea of what would happen if I turned that corner and did see a ghost, like what that would do to me, like how that would change my worldview, <laughs> and yeah. how I would react in that moment. Um, and we have a lot of stories here about people, you know, finding out the truth about their own identity or about that confrontation with the supernatural. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I remember when I was a kid, I liked watching all these documentaries, those faux documentaries on like the Amityville horror and stuff like that on TV. Yeah, and I, I, biography. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I would, I would take that completely seriously and believe yeah. it utterly as a kid. But as I grow up, I look at these with a little bit more cynical eyes, and I see them more as pieces of entertainment. Yeah. And sort of the way we sort of forward urban legends or modern myths. But again, there's that part of me that wants it to be true. That sort of. But you're, I mean. I don't know, you hear stories, and I guess they're always from another account. You know, someone has this account of what happened. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's almost like the telephone game and things change and stuff. But there's some pretty crazy, intricate stories, even here in Saskatchewan. Yeah. That are just pretty... They just, how do you explain them? Yeah, I don't know. My wife worked at uh, Fort Battleford. Right. And there's a story of they have a, um, a motion-sensitive alarm within the rooms. So if anything moves, these alarms get tripped. And uh, so it's like a parlor of some kind, and... They're unlocking the rooms, and they uh, they open the door to this parlor, and there's just this... The playing cards are intricately laid out across right. the room. And again, I mean, how much... Is that, did that event ever actually happen, or is that just like that? Someone had an idea or a story, and yeah. then they kind of just told it, and then it kind of became this... It's interesting. I think, like, everybody has kind of a ghost story, too. I yeah. have weird stuff that's happened to me that I can't really explain, and stuff that I remember from when I was a kid, and I think a lot of people do, and we all sort of uh, build on this. Um... So are there really ghosts out there, or, you know, is this sort of the stories that we tell because we're trying to, you know, we don't want to believe that death is the end, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think we just generally like uh, to feel some sort of threat that we can't control, you know, that's out of our control, and it has, like, a complete power over us, and how does it manipulate us and affect us, and we have that kind of, we like to be freaked out about those kind of things, or it's like a, if... There's something that, if we're at the top of the food chain, let's say, there's nothing above us. We're the ultimate predator. So in the same way, there's something here now that can control us in some way that we have no power We, yeah, but even at the top of the food chain, even as the ultimate predators, we all have to face death sooner or later. Absolutely, in, yeah. In, in, a, in a lot of ways, these horror movies are dealing with the sort of the biggest themes that you can. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, but in a more, we're going to try and jump out of the dark and spook you, or we're going to sort of get you with a twist. But um, anyway, um, the six movies that we are going to talk about, we have the uh, original Robert Wise Haunting from the 1960s, the adaptation of the Shirley Jackson novel, The Haunting of Hill House. Which I have not read. Uh, I have I'm a big fan <laughs> of it. I'm a big fan of it. Uh, we have The Entity, starring Barbara Hershey, which is the supposedly true story of a woman who is repeatedly sexually assaulted by a ghost. We have Session 9, uh, that uh, we're going to have an in-depth discussion of, <laughs> uh, from director Brad Anderson. Um, this is about a work crew who is asked to clean up asbestos in one of the creepiest buildings ever. <laughs> um, from uh, the late, great Richard Matheson. He just actually passed away last year. Oh, no, really? Uh, yeah. Uh, Stir of Echoes, uh, starring Kevin Bacon, uh, about an ordinary guy who sort of gets swept up in a supernatural adventure when uh, his sister-in-law opens him to the world of the supernatural. Um, the Nicole Kidman starring Others, uh, sort of a period piece about a, a woman who have some uh, two children who are allergic to light. So the mm -hmm. atmosphere is necessarily dark and spooky because sunlight itself is a threat to her family. Yeah. And uh, weird goings-on in her gothic sort of mansion. 
And last but not least, of course, from M. Night Shyamalan, The Sixth Sense. Um, I think everybody, everybody's at least heard of The Sixth Sense. I'd be shocked if they didn't. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> um, I do give a, a spoiler warning and I do give a language warning so we can talk about anything we want oh, about sweet. in these films. Yeah, well, that's and we can let to. fly with any, any curse words that we feel are appropriate. Okay. Um, and before we get started at the show, uh, I just want to say, uh, Matt Burgess is a fantastic local actor in Saskatoon. He's got lots of stage experience and she's from the Saskatchewan and he's uh, been in some movies and in some television and uh, he's the real deal. So uh, check out Matt Burgess. But uh, with that being said, I probably <laughs> will have completely the wrong opinion. <laughs> Our list will probably end up being hey, the okay. opposite. Uh, if you agree with me, you get a prize. Just so you know. I want to. I want to. So I was kind of playing it that way too. What did I, what what I was Larry, Larry like? like? <laughs> All right, well, should we get started? Let's do it. All right. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. Now, look, Doc, we're buddies, okay? But don't try to convert me. I'm trying to prepare you. My name's Markway, Dr. Markway, a scientist interested in the supernatural, the unnatural, if you like. I came to Hill House to find the key to another world. Assisting me in this exploration of the unknown was Eleanor, Nell, who could look back into the past. And Theo, something of a witch, who could see into the future. This is Luke, who didn't believe in anything. Until evil, patient and waiting, made him change his mind. Stop it! How many of us take seriously the things we cannot or do not want to understand simply because we are afraid? Okay, so I, I figured we'll start with the sort of oldest and most classic <laughs> of the bunch first, uh, The Haunting uh, by Robert Wise. Um, he's sort of a classic Hollywood director in a West Side story, some sort of epic Hollywood films. Um, and uh, this adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House from Shirley Jackson is one of his higher temples, I think. Of course, I'm a fan of the horror genre. But as we talked about before we started rolling, because of the time that the movie was made, uh, approaching it from, you know, the year 2014, uh, it sort of colors how you're going to take this movie. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so um, what did you think of The Haunting? Has it aged well? Does it scare? Um... I think there are some uh, noticeably cool things that happen in it, um, but I don't know if I'm ever actually scared throughout it with this particular production of it. Um, I watched it a couple times just because it was the first one that I had seen, and then I wanted to come back to it just because I had some time to elapse since right. I had seen it, um, and did some more research into it, but I just don't know if I get as caught up in it, and I think it's because... For me, a lot of it was some of the, the music in it, and I don't want to piss anybody off. <laughs> but it just, some of it just seems like really off-putting, and just makes me makes you go, "You're supposed to be scared now." Yeah. And even in like some of the commentary that I listen to, it's just talking about how it's like, uh, I don't like the the main actor, the guy who's the professor. Uh, Sorry, let's hmm. say Richard Johnson. Richard I, Johnson, I believe, would be playing Doctor. He the, says, the "Investigator." Uh, yes, he. Uh, he says that in the commentary that he doesn't uh, he doesn't like watching films that tell you when to feel a certain way, and it's just like 
Are you kidding me? The music in this movie is just going like, it's like big trombones, or not, but not like, it's kind of moody music, and it just doesn't have any kind of like, any ominousness to it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like very striking. It is somewhat operatic in scale, yeah. especially at, uh, well, and this is not just from the period of the movie. This is, I think, a, a, a conscious choice. Yeah, of the movie. yeah. <laughs> um, like the chimes ringing at the beginning when we're hearing Eleanor's backstory, uh, sort of adding to the craziness of it. Yeah. To do, just to yeah. speak a little bit of service to the plot before we get too far in it. Uh, basically, we have the classic tale of a group of people asked to investigate a haunted house. Uh, we are treated at the beginning to an extended prologue giving us the history of Hill House. And then we are introduced to the very broken, fragile character of Eleanor, who uh, is basically on her first... It's, it's, even though she's got to be in her mid-30s now, uh, she's, she basically feels mm -hmm. like a teenager out of the house for the first time, feeling tasting freedom for the first time in her life. And she meets this doctor who's investigating hauntings at Hill House, this uh, beautiful, eccentric, psychic woman... And this sort of young playboy dude, and uh, it's almost like a summer camp adventure for her. But uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, this is the greatest adventure of her life, and it, she has great importance is put on this by her, That's and great. she is sort of stepping into a, a great sort of supernatural, well, evil question mark. <laughs> um, I really think that the story is strong, and it is the best element that this movie has. Um, I do think that watching it from now, you have to sort of accept that the performances are arch. There's a little bit of theatricality to both mm -hmm. the dialogue itself and the performances of it. There's a bit of a yeah. newsreel quality to some of the information. <laughs> yeah. And now some exposition. <laughs> but oh. uh, I do... And really now some exposition, just tons of it. <laughs> <laughs> I kept I kept watching it and thinking I really want to see how that house affects her more, right? Um, or how much she becomes kind of drawn into the house rather than. And I know they were trying to stay true to the book, and she constantly has that. Uh, I guess she's fighting that whether she should leave or whether she should stay, because this is, as you said, the greatest adventure. But you just the whole time through, you're just feeling like I feel so bad for this woman because something <laughs> terrible is going to happen. It's like she just went through. How many years of having to look after her? Yeah. Her sick mother, and now this is just basically, oh, and now to reward you, we're going to put you through this, <laughs> this <laughs> hell forever. But, but this hell she welcomes with open, loving arms, because yeah. it's hers. It's something that makes her special, that validates her life. It's mm -hmm. a very tragic story in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know, they made it, I know they did it in the remake, they killed off the... Pompous asshole guy, but they could have just taken him instead. <laughs> but I guess that's the. This is a fairly bloodless story. I mean, uh, there's not a lot of death in it. There's a, there's more. It's a more about the atmosphere and the scares. And I think again, considering the time it was made, there is stuff that is pretty scary. Yes. Uh, uh, the pounding on the doors at night uh, and getting closer down the hallway, or the sequence of you're holding my hand too tightly. Uh, and there's nobody holding her hand, uh, you know. Uh, I thought for the time, so yeah. yes, <laughs> <laughs> they were, and they again taken right out of the pages of the book. Yeah, uh, I, I, I appreciate that they were faithful on that on that level, um, and that they tried to be faithful to the sort of uh, perhaps uh, attraction between the two female characters. Uh, they mm -hmm. had to be sort of stepped carefully around it given the time, but I think they pushed that sort of tension as far as they could, and uh, it still reads. 
that stuff I think is great, and that's after, after having watched it again, can appreciate that for sure. The, but, the, but you're talking like the uh, the sound of the down the hallway. Yeah. I didn't. I couldn't get the uh, because I guess the house was supposedly had these weird angles and weird corners. The way they filmed it and where the kind of sound just came out of maybe it's the TV that I have, but it doesn't like it. I don't you get that change? distance. Right. No. I thought there was some generally or some genuinely creepy things, like the writing on the wall. Right. But then, again, of the style, the way that the actors were, and I know that they had the three of the four, yeah. excluding Eleanor there, had to ha- had these sort of uh, very confident... Uh, demeanors. Demeanors, yeah. so there was never any, like, concern. Yeah. No, well, it's true. A lot of the people seemed unfazable, and I guess in yeah. a lot of ways that could take the scare out of you. Um, I think I might have a bias to this because I saw it at a young age. Too. Yeah. When I first saw this movie, I was just utterly captivated and terrified by it. And I can appreciate that too. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, um, yeah. And then I came to the book later, and then coming back to the movie, sort of full circle. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I think it works, and I think a lot of that. Again, Robert Wise is an amazing director, and I think the cast does well. Again, period yeah. performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the little touches, and they come right from the pages of the books. Mrs. Yeah. Dudley. Oh, she's fantastic. Mrs. Dudley, the caretaker who doesn't come to the house after night <laughs> and warns them that nobody lives any closer than town. No one will come any closer than that. In the night. In the dark. <laughs> in the like, it, seems like, it seems like they're hitting that note really hard, but it, it's awesome. I love it. It's like a classic little moment. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but and that's what I think is the difference in the performance. Like, I actually really enjoyed her, Mrs. Dudley. Like, I could have watched her the entire movie, but, like, <laughs> she's so awesome. Like, if she just hel- holds that character throughout. And I guess the other ones had it, but maybe Eleanor felt a little... I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the doctor was so into it, too. He just seemed unfazable. He really wanted to have a conversation with a ghost. You you get the feeling like he would just be thrilled and not at all fazed or scared by it. And, of course, the the psychic, obviously already a believer. And the young playboy is just sort of the young, hip playboy dude. uh, Until things get really obviously supernatural, he's just a drunk in the corner throwing some sarcastic lines. Uh, It's true, you don't get the dread from the cast, but uh, I got the dread again from the backstory. We know that this place is evil, and we know something bad is coming. Okay, but, and then here's the other thing, though. Um, I love that it's black and white, because I love the kind of shadows and stuff you can get. But it, it still feels like it's this brightly lit place because to build all those shadows you, and it looks like people are getting like huge like yeah. lights from below you can see the shadows like directly behind them so you know those lights are like strategic right in their face yeah but for a certain look which is to get these shadows and stuff which i think is great but then you lose that what what color and darkness can do right. to a piece i don't so i don't get as it's like filming that was it called like day for night where it's like you try and make it look like it's nighttime. Yeah, when it's not clearly. <laughs> yeah, when it's cl- clearly daytime by changing the tint or something. Is I get that same kind of effect where I can appreciate the lighting. Yeah. The way it is, but I notice the lighting. Yeah. Whereas in and when you're thinking about the lighting, films, you're not thinking about the movie. Yeah. Right. I get it. Um, well, overall, I mean, I would give this movie a thumbs up, and for me, it's going to rank actually pretty high on the list. But uh, <laughs> uh, we'll see how it goes. Is there anything else you want to say about the haunting? Um, that I think, uh, yes, given the time, I think people should see it because it is like the predecessors. This is what people were watching to now get to where we are now yeah. and just refining it. But these are the ones that are the important ones to watch to appreciate the starting of these. And I have to stress this. If you're going to watch The Haunting, watch the 1960s version of The Haunting. 
Yes. The 90s version, directed by Yann Devant, is just a, something you know that should be avoided. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I should. And then and then you can compare the two and see oh. which one you can actually appreciate more, because it's probably going to be the 60s one. Well, here I can say, here are three things that will make you angry right now. In the new version, the doctor doesn't tell them that the place is haunted. He says that he's doing a sleep study. The statues come to life, and they do absolutely nothing with the lesbian sort of intrigue angle, in spite of the fact that Catherine Zeta-Jones and Lily Taylor play the leads. I don't even know what else I have to say about that movie. It's just utterly bad. <laughs> In The Haunting, you're constantly waiting for the statues to move. And then they hold their... It's like watching... Uh, uh, from the Dark Knight, where he'll hold on that image, or like in, from Inception, with the coin, that, or the, the thing that's spinning. Yeah. And it's just about to fall, but it doesn't. It kind of keeps quite. Yeah. And then he cuts. So he leaves it like almost past that point. It's the same with this. It's like, are they going to move? Are they going to move? And just when you think they are, then you've already just cut something else. So I love the camera work in, in the movie. And too. I think that's the sign <laughs> of a good movie, too, because they're asking your imagination to do the work. Yeah. And uh, yeah. when they get you working against yourself, then, yeah, bravo. Twentieth Century Fox presents the story of Carla Moran, the most extraordinary case in the history of psychic research. Everything about losing went crazy, and everything was shaking. The bed was shaking, and the walls were shaking, and like uh, like an earthquake. No, it wasn't like an earthquake. It was much stronger than any earthquake. Oh wait a minute! I I honey, I don't really understand this. I, you were attacked, or, or you weren't. It happened. I was raped. You were raped by whom? I don't know. There was no one there. A team of experts will investigate her life. Why does he attack you, Carla? No, anyone else. Why should I go to such lengths to support this delusion? Okay, we're going to talk about the entity. Um, this comes from the early 80s. Um, it's directed by a man named Sidney Fury, and it's uh, based on an apparently true story uh, of a woman who has been repeatedly assaulted sexually by a ghost. Um, the uh, characteristics of this haunting go anywhere as benign as a foul smell to as horrifying as a spiritual rape scene, I guess. This like a number of them, like <laughs> yes. in front of family members. Like, yeah, it's and it is made <laughs> particularly horrifying because, yeah, she is uh, a single mother in a house full of younger children, and uh, it's not kept secret from them. Everybody knows what's going yeah. on, uh, and they're kind of prisoners of poverty too. <laughs> they can't move. They, there's no there's no place for them to go but to be homeless. So uh, it's uh, the the story is compelling and horrifying just on its face, but there's something to be said for the execution. Uh, people seem to be very mixed on this film. Some people think it's absolutely horrifying and and like a, 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 an A level thriller. Uh, Martin Scorsese calls it one of the most terrifying movies ever made, and there are other people who think it's you know trashy and uh, derivative you know, torture porny cinema. Uh, where do you land on the entity? Um, I was uh, not really familiar with the entity at all. So uh, to just not even read the back and just watch the movie, I was really... Uh, Shocked? I, yeah, I, but I'm really impressed, though, just with, like, the... I think the idea of it was something that I... You don't... You, the topic isn't touched on. And there's already that kind of question that maybe it was... Maybe not so much now, but when a woman claims that she's been raped, yeah. how much... 
you know, trust or belief in what her claims are, you know, like, and, and at this time, you know, that in of itself would have, you know, come into question, but, but uh, then you throw in the added bit that it is a, a ghost that's doing it. Yeah. Um, obviously people don't believe her right away. <laughs> yeah, and then there's, <clears throat> obviously the family does, and the way that the movie kind of portrays it is that they're completely 100% aware of it, and I'm sure that's, I guess, how the story actually went, which how she claimed. Yeah. Um, but then when, so when the bruises would show up, and she goes to talk with Ron Silver. Ron Silver, and, uh, psychiatrist, but yeah. And he thinks that it's self-inflicted, or self-inflicted. Yeah. Uh, even though there's no way that she could have controlled her body to actually have done anything like that to herself. That's that kind of throws me in some. Like, it was just kind of like a red flag that stood out to me as a weird. It takes moment. him a long time to believe her, but I do think they made a real effort in this movie to make it as real world as possible. Yeah. So in this world, oh yeah, you know, people do not get raped by ghosts and she does exhibit a lot of these behaviors of you know sort of she's been abandoned by her husband she's sort mm -hmm. of she's poor she drinks a lot uh she's under a lot of stress and she needs some outlet to put all her frustrations into mm -hmm. and uh if she can find a legitimate one is she inventing one in this evil spirit mm -hmm. um the movie doesn't play the ambiguity of it I mean, we know yeah. that this is real, yeah. but the other people who she tells... Oh, absolutely, and they do a good it. job of that, yeah. And her neighbor doesn't believe it until she that. witnesses it directly. Yeah. And I think in the real world, and I speak as, like I say, a fairly skeptical person, yeah, maybe that is what I need. I mean, maybe there is nothing that you could say to me that would make me believe there was a ghost. But yeah. if I walked into your kitchen and there was a ghost there, <laughs> I would believe there was a yeah. ghost. <laughs> okay, then, then, okay, you got me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think Barbara Hershey gives a pretty brave performance. Oh, absolutely, here. she does. Because there's a point in it where it's she even just look in her eye makes you go, is she just crazy? And despite the fact that we've seen all this happen, she gives these pretty amazing looks that you just go, what the, what's going on in her head? What? It? Yeah. In a movie full of horrifying moments, I think one of the scariest things to me is the first time she is slapped. You hear the sound effect of a slap, and her face goes to the side, mm -hmm. and she brings her fingers up to her face, and she's bleeding just a little bit. Yeah. And she looks at herself in the mirror, and she looks at herself like she is crazy. Yeah. And then the attack really begins. Yeah. Uh, I, like, it's utterly chilling, and uh, I'm just... Uh, I, I, I totally understand how this would hit somebody and be like... I will not be in my house alone again tonight after I watch this movie, you know. But then realizing that there is no way to get away from it, because then the car scene happens, and yep. it's like, this is, this is like, attached to you. Yep. And it's just going to do whatever it wants, whatever it wants. Yep. And I think that that's sort of the interesting thing about the true case and about sort of cases like this, maybe less severe sort of poltergeisty things, that the phenomenon sort of centers around a person. It's not a house, typically. Mm -hmm. It's not a haunted house. It's a spirit that is obsessed with them. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, also gives compelling evidence that it is something that is coming from them. Um, but, uh, mm -hmm. again, uh, according to this movie, there's a ghost, and I have no yeah. problem with taking that ride with it. I think where, for, where, where the wheels get a little bit creaky for me is in the third act, when we get to this elaborate sort of gymnasium <laughs> ghost mousetrap sequence. A replica of him. It's like they had a really brilliant, really terrifying concept, but they didn't really have a, a, 
a complete story to tell because, you know, even according to the true life, in quotation accounts, this happened for a long time and then it didn't. (laughs) Uh, So they're trying to manufacture some sort of satisfactory climax or, you know, release or beat Mm -hmm. to the end of the movie. And it sort of culminates in this, it really looks like a gymnasium of a high school that they retrofitted to catch ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> like, they have the resources devoted to this in parapsychology. <laughs> well, this was millions of dollars at work. This guy really called in every favorite that he had. <laughs> but Barbara Hershey, I mean, will just takes it to a, another level. Yeah, and I do think that I would warn anybody who's watching it, this is fairly graphic in in, in the portrayals yeah. of the attacks you know the, uh, uh, the, it could have been a lot harsher than it is but i mean i find it you know it's off-putting and it should be yeah. it's like it like it's approached seriously yes um except except some of the the, the uh, special effects are kind of dated yeah which takes you away takes you out of it a little bit i think for a movie, i can appreciate what they're saying and yeah. how awful it is but it's that's not and not that it has to be heard, but there was like a weird sort of animatronic for a movie body. that was very early in the eighties. Uh, it's it's not as taxing to watch as some of the eighties cinemas that you'll yeah, see. Yeah, I guess there's things like that I find amusing, like how the the boardroom full of psychiatrists and doctors is just like everybody was smoking in there. <laughs> it's <was> just <laughs> yeah. like a pillow of smoke. <laughs> everybody had huge beards and like was just. Chain smoking. And yeah, like you say, some of the like the, the electrical sparks, yeah. the, sort of the blue entity sparks that we see in the house, you know, just look drawn in and uh, they're of the time. Yeah. I think if you saw this in 1980, you'd Again, be like, yeah, yeah absolutely scary. <laughs> uh, I think some credit needs to be given to the soundtrack, even it is very synthy, but. Um, there's a specific percussion thing that happens when the this entity is attacking. Mm-hmm. Um, Quentin Tarantino is a big fan of it. He actually samples it and uses it in Inglorious Bastards. Uh, I didn't know that. When the uh, when the Shoshana character comes to the dinner table and she sees that uh, she's about to eat supper with the man who killed her family, uh, when she sees him, all of a sudden that same sound cue from the entity starts slamming. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, it's 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 really sort of it's weird. It's it's very specific '80s sounding thing. Yeah. But uh, and uh, you would never. I don't think you would hear it nowadays unless it was in a movie make made to be a throwback, uh, mm-hmm. emulating the '80s. But I do think it kind of works in the world of this entity movie. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> What's compelling to me is the Barbara Hershey central performance and the sort of basic con- conceit of the movie. Uh, like I say, I think that we kind of lose we lose it a little bit in the third act. I'm trying to remember the specifics of the ghost trap. Do you I think it was... Uh, they uh, recreated her house. house. Yeah, but it was like all plexiglass, I think, and she had this one corner of the house that she had to get to. She'd hit the button, safety wall would come down, and then the house would be Everything flooded with helium would, or, or nitrogen. Yeah. And then they came up with... And then this, so this ghost was, for a short period of time, trapped in like this kind of icicle kind of... A gooey form that's really, again, it just doesn't look very good. And in a movie that's so trying to take itself seriously, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. And then, as you said, yeah, then she's, she comes in and she, she makes some claim, says something about, you will not, 
you will not ever own me or something like that. And then they, she leaves the house. Uh, and then they have that little, yeah, the little trailer talking about that. Oh yeah, and then the ghost periodically uh, would find her, find her and mess with her again. <laughs> yeah. Again, there's um, no real satisfactory ending to this movie. It's like here's a bunch of creepy scenes, and here's yeah. how maybe they would try to treat it. Yeah. Um, and credits. But I do think it's worth a look. Oh, yeah. I do think, like, it's interesting. I don't think it's going to rank super high on the list for me, but um, I do think that I would recommend it to people. Um, Mm -hmm. It's weird, because for a movie that seems to be so divisive in a love-or-hate category, I kind of land somewhere in the middle there. I I do think that it hits a primal nerve Mm -hmm. as far as that vulnerability. And I think especially if you're, like, a... A woman who lives alone <laughs> watching this movie could really just terrify <laughs> you, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I do find it creepy and compelling. Um, and, uh, yeah. I think, again, uh, I think the camera work in this one is, is good. There's some really awesome shots, just with, like, of her coming home. Her house is on that slant, and they've turned the camera so it's on the slant so that the road actually looks perfectly flat, but now the house is kind of on an angle, and she's off, and really kind of sets a mood of, like, things are different now. This house is askew, you know, this world is now kind of shifted a bit. And I appreciate how, with the exception of one scene where they genuinely just surprise you out of nowhere with the attack, you feel the attacks coming before Mm -hmm. they happen. Yeah. Uh, You sort of, you're, like, psychologically right with her. Uh, like, oh, she's just reading her book and everything's fine, and then she stops, and you're, like, right there with her. There's just, uh, they, they drag you into it. Yeah. Um, and again, that's, that's where this movie really works. It's Barbara Hershey alone in her room at night. Yikes. Yikes. Yeah. And uh, just in the bathroom, that bathroom scene is just, uh, yeah. just troubling. Because <laughs> yeah. you are so vulnerable. You've just gotten out of the, you know, out of the bath, the yeah. floor's wet, yeah. you're, you know, vulnerable. It's and a classic horror movie conceit. A lot yeah. of people complain, why do they always have to have nudity in the mov- in these horror movies? Well, despite, you know, other than the fact that people like nudity, mm-hmm. there is exactly, like you say, this sort of feeling of vulnerability. There's yeah. really like, uh, you, you only would strip off your clothes in a place where you felt safe and secure. Yeah. And to be attacked in a place where you are the most safe and secure is, is horrifying. I can't get construction crews in here by Columbus Day, so you got to guess for how long? I've got four really good guys. One week, we're gone. That's fast. I need the job. So the loonies are outside in the real world, and here we are with the keys to the loony bin, boys. <laughs> Might actually want to be grateful when you're about to make some decent money. What's the catch? Patricia Willard scandal, 1984. <laughs> I want you to try to remember what happened 20 Okay, so some bold words here for uh, session nine. From uh, Brad Anderson. Um, I think that Session 9, this film about uh, a work crew who is asked to remove asbestos from an old abandoned asylum, might go beat for beat for me with Stanley Kubrick's The Shining as far as sustained atmosphere of creepiness and tension. (laughs) I, like... It's a it's a, le- a more obscure title than most of the movies in this list, um, but it's set in a real place and shot in a real place. Yeah. And there's something about the movie 
And I feel this about The Shining too, whereas like almost every scene, I feel like there's another character who's about to walk in the room. Well, I think the whole building is another character for it. Like it's just yeah, it's awful. It's an <laughs> awful place when you can because they and it's as you said, it's an actual building. Yeah, only a portion of it they could actually uh, actually film in the Danvers uh, Mental uh, Asylum. I think Danvers Institute. Apparently, it is subsequently burnt down. Unfortunately. Oh really? Uh, you can get YouTube footage of people filming it burn right actually. Really? Uh, I don't know if there's much or if anything left of the actual place, but uh, I think that this is definitely one of those low-budget movies that make great use of their location. Yeah. And uh, over and above that, there's a really, really strong cast here. Um, I think that Peter Mullen, who is our lead, is... Mm-hmm amazing in this movie Mm -hmm. i'll just be frank um josh lucas uh brendan sexton the third and uh stephen gavadin who also co-wrote the screenplay is good yeah Uh, and the real surprise and the deal breaker for a lot of people when i say you should check out this movie yeah david caruso yeah (laughs) what did you think of session nine oh i love session nine (laughs) Like, like they say, they didn't actually bring anything in for set decoration because everything they needed was already in there. It was this fucking crazy Yeah, pipes shithole. exposed, flaky paint peeling, um, dripping water, like sagging floors, and vast empty hallways. Chain link fences dividing corridors of, of uh, stairs for patients and visitors, or yeah. patients and uh, guests, uh, doctors and stuff like yeah. that. So they're, um, the aqua... The, the hydrotherapy. Yes, dunk them in cold water. That will make them less crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then just areas that they couldn't go down, or you know, that they could still get shots of. There's a, one of the great shots just off the start. It's like it's even on the poster. It's just this long hallway of like it looks like the whole floor is rotted out and the walls are rotted out. And at the end, the sun's kind of coming through and spreading light over this wheelchair that's just sitting right in the middle at the end of the hallway. And yeah. it's like. It looked like it would disintegrate if you touched it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the movie is full of these really gr- grotesque, horrifying images. And I do think that... Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say anything bad about the performances, too. Everybody p- pulls their weight. Yeah. Uh, the sound design does an awful lot of the work, too. Mm-hmm. One of the characters, Stephen Gavardin, uh, who was uh, studying to be a lawyer at one point in his life, and is obviously a fairly sharp guy, sort of stumbles yeah. upon these old recordings of this woman who apparently had multiple personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And he becomes kind of quietly obsessed with listening to these old interviews, these old sessions of uh, this woman who we, we, we slowly learn the history of throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, what's left to, I guess, the viewer's interpretation is how ghostly this ghost movie really is. Is this, in the end, a portrait of insanity? Or is this a haunted place? that sort of takes advantage of someone who's already fragile. Again, I keep going back to The Shining, but that's sort of, I think, where what most sort of lends itself to. And I think you're in good company, if I'm comparing yeah. you with The, the Shining. I, I Yo, God, that I mean, that's a very... <laughs> is it actually a ghost story? Because there is no real uh, ghostly things that happen other than these voices that are heard. Mm-hmm. And, again, is that in Peter Mullen's head, or yeah. is that something that really happened to him? So, and, again, like, so, like, full disclosure, yeah. this guy's coming off of just having a, a new newborn baby. Yeah. 
with his wife. Um, seems to have some sort of colicky problems, yeah. which I can imagine would be <laughs> stressful. Terrible, yeah. On top and of his high-stress job, he comes yeah. home to a screaming baby every night. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the events of what happened after getting the, the contract, because his business is also uh, going down the toilet. So this yeah. is the job he needs, and he, uh, and he guarantees a certain deadline. So he's under a lot of stress there already. Correct. What I don't know, other than the link from that voice that he hears from the Hello Gordon to the what he hears on the tape of making that some sort of ghostly connection, like a transference of a ghost or a, an entity or a demon that would, or because would it be a ghost that would then get into yeah. his body? Or would well, it again, and this is up to your, your interpretation, and mm-hmm. you can choose to make the interpretation that Peter Mullen went crazy, killed his family and his crew, and yeah. that was the story. But I think that there's another uh, there's another there's another ingredient here, okay. and, and I think that the movie uh, at least gives me the option for it, uh-huh. uh, and a lot of yeah. it comes from the tapes. Yes, uh, the whole time he's talking to the different personalities of, of this uh, patient, he's trying to get to the personality that executed the murder. Mm-hmm. And when he finally gets to that voice, which is Session 9, which is the name of the movie, which gives me to think that there's some importance (laughs) to it, um, the voice completely changes and becomes like... I mean, they're all separate personalities as far as an innocent child or a protector figure or Annie, sort of the the, the top-level personality. This seems disembodied of all of them. Oh, yeah. The other one seems like... I believe she calls calls itself. And Simon says that it lives in the weak and the weary. And Peter Mullen's character is that. When we meet him, he is the weak and the weary. He needs this job. He's just frayed around the edges. He's not sleeping. And he comes to this Danvers place, desperate, mm-hmm. so desperate for the job that he underbids for the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gets good cash for it, but he basically says he can do it at twice the speed that is reasonable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. So he puts his crew on even more stress than they would already have. They're, they're clearing asbestos. This stuff gets into your lungs, and it shortens your life by de- decades. Like, it's bad. Uh, so um, he is fragile. He mm-hmm. is the weak and the weary when he comes to Danvers, and he gets hypnotized by that long hallway, and that sort of is, I think, yes, uh, the moment that, that tips him over. We don't realize it's the moment that tips him over until the last few minutes of the movie when these cards are sort of shown to us. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, like that's how I interpret it, that Simon basically tipped him over the edge. And, uh, basically, you know, that might have been the Mullen character who snapped and killed his family, Mm -hmm. but Simon was probably the one pulling the strings with his work crew, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Um, uh, it's a tragic story, like a lot of these movies are, uh, um, and I do think that it, uh, that central performance by Peter Mullen is just amazing. Yeah, and there's, yeah, and it doesn't, it kind of, it's an in the same way it kind of uh, is laid out to you as you'd find in The Sixth Sense, where it's like things are right there in the open for you to see, but yeah. you're just not seeing them because we're also taking you on this other story, but it's all kind of there at the same time. And he does a great job, and they do pair up things, like when he's on the phone trying or talking to his wife. Yeah. Um, 
And he's right beside the, the, the tombstone of 444, which happens to be the root number 444. I was and going to talk about that scene, because mm-hmm. I love that scene when his, his nephew interrupts him <laughs> as he's on the phone with his wife, in quotes. Mm-hmm. He keeps talking to his dead wife on the phone. <laughs> Again, we don't realize this until the third act of the movie, but uh, that scene where his, his conversation is interrupted and his... His nephew basically tries to calm him, and he's genuinely touched mm-hmm. by this kid sort of reaching out, and they shake hands. It's just such a great scene, yeah. uh, and the the character beats in this movie are so strong. Uh, like I said, I remember recommending this movie to a friend of mine, and I had to say, I'm going to attach a writer. Yeah. I think you should watch this movie, but you're going to not want to when I say David Caruso yeah. is in the movie. David Caruso is in the movie, and you know what? He's good. He's really good in it. Really good in it. Uh, I think there's only one moment where I have, there's a really big David Caruso moment, and the camera actually tilts in, and he leads forward and says, "Fuck you." <laughs> <laughs> and that was like the one moment that they let Caruso just off the leash a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and I, it, like, it does make me laugh. And I don't know if it's an appropriate moment to get a laugh. Like, this is a real conflict se- scene. Yeah. But like. Uh, it seems like Crusoe's made his career of doing these weird, like, nose-to-nose intense confrontations, you know, mm-hmm. with, like, super macho shit, so... Which you don't find in this movie, no. though. No, when he's trying to talk with... He's always trying to placate uh, Gordon. Yeah. You know, or... or um, Peter Mullen's character. Uh, and he's sort of second fiddle to the Josh... What's his name? Lucas. Josh Lucas' character stole his girlfriend. Yeah. And he's this, like, perpetually insecure about it. Yeah. And he, but he genuinely cares for Gordon. Yeah. And will support him on those decisions, even though the even decisions underpaid everything. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, we're just going to do it. Yeah. That's the boss, and, and he said it. it. Uh He's the red herring of the, the movie. They keep on wanting us to think like there's something yeah. sinister about uh, David Caruso. And I kind of felt, and this is me bringing my own baggage to the movie, when I was watching it even the first time, it's not David Caruso. Yeah. It's just it's just not. They're, they're, making the, they're trying too hard to make me think David Caruso is suspicious. But what really gets me, what I think is sort of quietly brilliant, is when we sort of find out the twist of his character. And again, we've been going spoilers left and right in this mm-hmm. movie, but so be it. Um, it should be analyzed. He, the, we see him showing up really early to work one morning, yeah. and we're kind of wondering what he's doing there. And uh, he's smoking a joint. Yeah. Josh Lucas' character talks about how all of the guys have sort of exit plans or strategies to help them deal with their stress. And we come to realize the reason that David Crusoe has been acting kind of paranoid and twitchy and disappearing is that... That's his little vice. Yeah. He sort of just sort of steps off into the shadows and smokes a joint every now and then. Yeah. Uh, and compared to the evil we suspect, suspect him of, this is so benign. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, uh, and you would have never guessed in a million years that that's where they were going with that character. And yeah. I really liked that. Yeah. Um, he also has an interesting uh, couple of scenes towards the end of the mov- movie where he is talking to Gordon, but he's not the David Caruso character anymore. Yeah. Uh, at some point, he becomes either the projection of Peter Mullen's madness or the projection of this evil entity, Simon, basically mm-hmm. saying, yes, it's true, you have gone, you, you've killed your family and you've killed your friends, and whatever is left of your life is 
in this Danvers place, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, happy, happy. Yeah. Uh, but I yeah. think from a, an acting perspective, that would be an interesting thing to approach because what, where do you hang that on? What character are you like? Where are you <laughs> when you're, you're delivering those lines? Your character has died. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so, considering the, the the part that he's asked to play, I thought, yeah, David Crusoe was was fine. Absolutely, I thought he was great. Yeah, <laughs> the one that kind of got me was uh, Sexton the third. Yeah, I didn't know how I'm supposed to take this guy. The, the like, kid. Yeah, is he is mullet he, boy? <laughs> yeah, is he a good actor or is he just like the buddy? Have somebody? you seen Boys Don't Cry? <coughs> oh God, I'm going to sound like an idiot because I know I have not seen it, but uh, uh, he plays uh, sort of a redneck character in Boys Don't Cry. Okay. And I do think he is good. Yeah. But I do think, to a percentage, yes, he is playing himself. Yeah. In, in some ways, there's, there's a, the very earnestness to his portrayal. Yeah. But I think it works because he's sort of the keener, goofy kid. Yeah. Who probably wouldn't no, be I there? No, you enjoy he wouldn't be there if his uncle didn't run the place, right? Yeah. And everybody there knows it, and they have to put up with him, right? Yeah. And I get that. And he has probably one of the best sort of spook scenes in the in the movie. Yeah. Because they establish that he's scared of the dark, and there's a scene where the power goes out, and he starts running down this hallway, and the lights start basically start going, going out and chase so the darkness chases him. Which down which I think is a great effect in the film. But then that then I jump in and go. But that's not realistic because those lights would all, all just go out. <laughs> so it's like if they're exploding, one, yeah. no, that would make I don't know if that makes sense either. But but it's like the worst possible scenario that yeah. could happen to that character, you know? Yeah. And you see him like choking on that one little shaft of light, and he's the one that's working. Yeah. Out of all of them, everybody else gets distracted and and, and dragged away. Uh, obviously, we are both huge fans of, yeah. of Session Nine. Um, but I think another thing that I, I do want to bring up briefly is that you actually had a chance to work with the director, Brad Anderson. You did an episode of Masters of Horror. I did. Let's name drop here. <laughs> so, no. Uh, what, can you give me a little bit of... I, I'm actually genuinely a big fan of this director. I yeah, know In an too. earlier episode, I kind of shit-talked one of his movies, The Vanishing on 7th Street. But uh, I do genuinely like this guy, and I will watch any movie yeah. that he makes. Um, no, it was great. I, got to, I was in Vancouver, and they were, they were filming there. Um, and I called in for an audition, and as I said, this one for some reason went really well. I don't know why. I had no idea. We had other people in the room with us instead of like a usual sort of one person with a reader, right. like back and forth kind of thing. We had three guys that were just sitting in the room together, and we were supposed to be having this conversation about a guy across the room. And now we had this like super hearing. Yeah. And we walk in, and it's not typical because there's like a couple of producers at the table, and but then there's this guy sitting on the floor with like another camera. And I'm like, what the f- what is this? You're just filling up this room. It's already hot enough in here as it is. And we're uh, sitting there and we're going through the scene. We did it a couple times. And then the guy gets up who has the camera and he's like, okay, can you just try doing like this, like this, whatever? And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. And I go ahead and, you know, we, we all kind of change it up a bit. Make some adjustments. Make some adjustments. And then yeah, there was like, uh, we went and called him for some other stuff. Uh, but then I went home afterwards and I was like, that was, it was different from any uh, audition I'd ever had. So I looked at like the sheet, the email that you get or whatever that says about who's directing and stuff like that. And I was like, and it said Brad Anderson. I was like, Brad Anderson? Who's Brad Anderson? I know that name. And then so I, I had, uh, I Googled it. Yeah. And it turns out that he, he had made Session 9, which I'd already seen, and uh, Machinist, which it was another film that yeah. uh, I thought was fantastic. Absolutely. And, uh, so I was like, holy, this could be cool. This would be really cool. And I ended up, uh, yeah, I got the, I got the part. I went in there. Just a short scene. And as I was joking, like, this is something that, he's never going to remember, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, Vancouver, 
Yeah, I was in Vancouver once. What the fuck oh, was right. Before, that was yeah. Vancouver for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, uh, it was just a cool experience because it, the limited success I've, I've ever had in, in that, uh, in that art form, um, I had an opportunity to work with this guy who was really, really cool. When we went in there, he was like, you know, I wrote the stuff, but some of it I think sounds kind of stupid, so just feel free to just cut, you know. And if it's something that I actually think actually was kind of important, okay, I should put it back in. Right. And we're like, oh, oh, okay. He goes, but just kind of run me through it and see what you think. And, and then we'd film one thing, and he goes, okay, you know that line where you said it this way? I want you just to say that first half of the line, then turn and look, wait for like 40 seconds, and then turn back and say the line again. Right. And he's like, I just want to, I just want to see what it looks like. And I was right. like, okay. So we did that, and he comes back, and you know, we do the scene, and he comes over and goes, yeah, sorry, that was, that was stupid. That We're was not going to do that long. again. <laughs> it's ridiculous. 40 seconds is too long. Yeah. <laughs> but so, hey, he's trying stuff, right? Yeah, And exactly. it was a fairly comfortable set. You know? Oh, absolutely. He let you just do, instead of, and I don't know whether if it was just the way it worked out, but we had all been like really kind of rehearsing the lines before we even got onto the set there, so we kind of had a, uh, we knew, we were pretty prepared for yeah. the scene itself. And so he didn't really have any kind of negative things to say, and I think the scene turned out to be pretty cool. Yeah. I think. And the people, yeah, it was, it was a good experience. I just had to take the bus all the way down to like from Vancouver, like downtown Vancouver to southern southern South Richmond. Right. So it's a fairly long bus ride with like <laughs> to bring all these like different clothes to wear <laughs> as like options to put me in for the show. But so. you were in Masters of Horror, and you got to work with Brad. Absolutely, Anderson, and that's awesome. And there was like a barbecue later on. And uh, so they had the Masters of Horror and Masters of Science Fiction as like a rap party for both this, right. this park and all the people that had been in a show or, whatever, or a part of any of the productions could come and it was there was like music and you could get a burger and stuff like that. So it was just really like a, a, a rap party appreciation sort of day. And we're there and we're about ready to leave. And I look over and Jonathan Frakes is standing <laughs> nice. just, just down the way. And it, Number two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I show that I'm a, Number one. a Number bit one. of a... Star Trek nerd, but uh, Jonathan Frakes was, yeah, in uh, Star Trek Next Generation, yeah. in the films that followed. Um, but a pretty pretty cool, fun director, I think, and it seems like, I think he never took himself too seriously yeah. in those shows, because of the, the content and the costumes they had to wear, but... Uh, he, he was probably there for the Masters of Sci-Fi. Masters of Sci-Fi, yeah, yeah so he yeah. was directing one, one of those, those episodes. Yeah, because I've seen the Masters of Horror, I don't think I've seen all the Masters of Sci-Fi. No, yeah, he didn't... No, I saw your episode, and I was like, there's my buddy, man! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, that's super cool. Yeah, I never had the stamp stones to go over and uh, say hi to him. But <laughs> yeah. it was just like, uh, <laughs> uh, so session nine, fantastic ghost movie question mark? Because is there a ghost? Yeah. Oh, and I'm sorry, I just have to add one more thing. Yeah. I know I would keep on hitting to the end of the review, and then I push it further. <laughs> no, this is uh, I've mentioned it before, and I'm going to mention it again. My buddy Larry Fessenden shows up in this movie. He's a writer-director of horror movies. He did this film, uh, The Last Winter, and uh, Wendigo, and uh, Habit, a vampire movie. Okay. And he's got this one coming out called Beneath. Anyway, I kind of dig the way he does business. He also acts here and there. And he has this thing about showing up in movies for one scene and getting killed. And sure enough, he shows up at the end of this movie... He replaces one of the dudes who goes missing, <laughs> and uh, he shows up for a job, and he walks up to the top floor and finds Peter Mullen, and he ends up taking the uh, ice pick to the eye. <laughs> so this is yet another case of Larry Fessenden showing up for one scene and dying, and it's a pretty spectacular death. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. You feel so bad for that guy. He just showed up for but, work. Yeah. <laughs> 
just some dude who showed up for work. <laughs> I question though when his realization that there was just someone lying on the ground. When he comes like kind of walking in, you're kind of like, how could you not see the body right there? Yeah, There's exactly. like a dead body wrapped in cellophane. Run! He's just coming for a payday. <laughs> <laughs> Poor bastard. But then it just gets awful. Yeah. yeah. So well, that's it. I think we've spoiled everything about section yeah. nine. Oh, the ice, the ice picked out of uh, Josh Lucas's eye. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Oh, that's, oh, I think yeah. that's the only actual money they put into like CGI yeah. stuff. Yeah, but it's good. It really looks bad. <laughs> I watched this with my buddy Matt, and the scene where Josh Lucas comes back to the embers at night to collect the coins from the wall, Matt couldn't handle it. Yeah. he had like he had a blanket over his head. He was just like, oh, what's great about that too is the is the uh, split focus of who we're following because you see the one where you're watching Josh Lucas walk down some <laughs> corridors at night with just a flashlight, but then you're seeing from another angle the flashlight flashing against the the, wall. the one wall, and then that camera starts to move in, and you and it's just it's great for yeah for the intensity. And it's an amazingly shot, written, and acted yeah. movie. I think we've covered it well. Yes. <laughs> well, I saw a guy who got a two-inch needle stuck into his arm while he was under hypnosis, didn't feel pain. Okay, Kreskin, prove it. Hypnotize somebody. Yeah, do me. No. Come on. What's the worst that can happen? Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Why do I know that song? Are you okay? What the hell did she do to me? I see a red door and I want to paint his He hasn't gone to work. He sleeps like 12 hours a night. Why are you digging? The man's switch got flipped. He's a receiver now. She's taking him away. She was here. What's the problem? So we're going to talk about Stir of Echoes, which is uh, based on a novel by Richard Matheson. Uh, are you a Matheson fan? <laughs> I do not know. He wrote, uh, <laughs> he wrote the novel uh, I Am Legend. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, oh. He, he wrote uh, The Legend of Hell House, not Hill House, but Hell House, um, The Incredible Shrinking Man, Okay. Uh, some famous really? Twilight Zone episodes, The Gremlin on the Wing of the Plane, yeah. that's Matheson. Uh, classic Star Trek episode where Kirk turns into evil Kirk in oh, a yeah. transporter. Matheson. Uh, I'm a big Matheson fan. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's my boy, and we just lost him last year. Um, and David Kep, uh, who's the writer-director of this adaptation, Stir of Echoes, is sort of uh, one of Spielberg's sort of favorite script fixers. Oh, he'll, yeah. he'll bring him in for polishes all the time on his scripts. He wrote his War of the Worlds and the Jurassic Parks and... Uh, some of his more blockbustery movies. Um, and David Kep had made a uh, low-budget thriller called The Trigger Effect, which okay. was about power outages in L.A. that basically one day the power went out and didn't go back on and people started going crazy. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a pretty decent little thriller. Mm-hmm. And uh, several years later, out comes his follow-up. Um, and I really think that the, the most unfortunate element about Stir of Echoes is that it got released in 1999. Uh, hot on the heels of not only The Sixth Sense, but just in a crowd of amazing movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of got lost. It was, well, I think it was one month, after, almost one month or around one month after uh, Sixth Sense, Sense came out. Either. And it was just like... Yeah. It was a, it yeah, it was, the, it was the other ghost movie that people missed. And it was so good. <laughs> yeah. And I really do think people should check out uh, Stir of Echoes. Yeah. Um, Stephen King counts Matheson as a big influence. 
and uh, I, I keep on bringing it back to The Shining, but the father-son relationship uh, here in Stir of Echoes is kind oh. of similar to oh, the father-son yeah. relationship that we see in The Shining as far as <laughs> the kid having a gift, and no, a big, strong, loud gift, and the father just having a slight echo but not really recognizing it, or yeah. in the case of The Shining, sort of drinking it away with denial. And uh, Kevin Bacon probably could have ignored his ability his entire life. Until his sister-in-law, uh, played memorably by Ileana oh, Douglas, who uh, got a big old good. crush on yeah. her, I like her, uh, hypnotizes him and tells him to be more open to things, which is great. The visuals in that are awesome. Uh, yeah, she hypnotizes him. That's a great sequence. We should talk about that. Mm-hmm. But as far as the basic plot, once mm-hmm. he comes home, he starts seeing a ghost in his house. And... Uh, his wife and neighbors start to think that maybe he's crazy, but we're fairly sure that this is a legitimate thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, him dealing with being open and this presence in his house is largely what the plot concerns itself with. Yep. Uh, what did you think of Stir of Echoes? Oh, I, I think it's one of those tragedies that, I mean, I, I, again, I don't want to take anything away from The Sixth Sense because I think it's a fantastic movie, but I think this one kind of just got gotten pushed out of the way. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because I think it's great. Kevin Bacon, I think, is good. Um, so I've always had a kind of a problem with Kevin Bacon, but uh, I think he does a fairly. I think he does a really good job. Uh, the one I do not appreciate so much is his wife, Catherine Irving. I have yeah. a. I wasn't. Just in terms of acting, I didn't think that she was necessarily as strong or as interesting to watch. She certainly didn't have as much to do as he did. I don't. I don't yeah. remember being bothered by her particularly. Um, yeah. But. Uh, he basically has an arc, and she basically stands at the side of the screen with a perplexed look yeah. on her face yeah. while her husband acts crazy. Yeah, and that's or there's yeah scenes of her looking like she's actually genuinely concerned about her husband that could possibly believe. And again, there's like a and as you said, you, you brought it back to The Shining, but the actual character, the person that uh, tells the mother about the gift. Mm-hmm. Is this really large black man? And there's yeah. like a huge homage to. <laughs> you can't see that. I'm just like, this is. Did he just rip this off, or is this. Is no, this well, uh, Stir of Echoes does predate The Shining significantly. It <laughs> so, doesn't. Uh, 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 I believe so. And Stephen King does mark uh, Matheson as an influence. Okay. And again, if you look at. Before, yeah, if you look at Stir of Echoes, you look at The Shining, you look at uh, I Am Legend, and you look at The Stand in some respects, as far as the apocalyptic yeah. vibe of it. Um, yeah, you can see influences there. Yeah. Um, as far as this adaptation, it's definitely updated. Uh, yeah. It's modernized, quote-unquote. But uh, what I really dig that they seem to embrace in this movie is how every man Kevin Bacon is. A lot of the times these are happening in like these big gothic manors owned by rich people, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, this is just a dude who's, you know, likes to go to sporting events and drink beer and, you know, is got a, a good relationship with his wife and, you know, trying to figure out how to be a dad. Yeah. And he's just a normal dude. And he and didn't ask for this. Yeah, he just gets thrown into this. Yeah. And it does utterly obliterate his life. Like, his marriage is starting to fall apart. His neighbors think he's crazy. His kid's getting scared of him. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's all, yeah, I, I think it's a really good performance from Kevin Bacon. It depends on the day with me and Kevin Bacon, to be yeah. honest. Sometimes I... Uh, I can't shake the fact that I'm looking at Kevin Bacon. Yeah, well, that's what I think, too. It's just been... It's just one of He's just that guy who's been around so much. Yeah. There's Kevin Bacon. Other times I love him. Um, Like, Tremors? Yeah. Love him. 
Love him. You know, I think that like he's great, great performance in that movie. And it does there's no Kevin Baconness to it. But then, you know, there's other times where I just feel like Here's just, Kevin Bacon phoning it in today. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I kinda of felt that with this, but that he was also trying to push himself to be this more of like a lower middle class kind of character. And I don't from him I like I'll buy him more in his new one as the detective that's the alcoholic that's in uh, the the following on right. CTV, that one. I, I always kinda of see him in that and I, when he, it just seems like he's to, I don't know. He's sort of getting more into the sort of tough guy villainy roles in his old age. He's sort of lost the baby face and starting to get yeah. a little haggard. Yeah. <laughs> so I think he's trying on this one, and I appreciate what he's trying to do, but I still don't, I kind of still look at him and go, yeah, but you're just, you're Kevin Bacon. <laughs> you're the guy from Footloose. And like, uh, I, I still think he's good, because he can still do that, stuff, like, anxiety and stuff like that, yeah. and the and the, the pressure, you know, though some of that seems, but it always seems like he's either not willing to completely go there. It's like he's holding back on... If he's going crazy, his crazy is still sort of like restrained crazy in a way. I really I enjoyed the scene where he was digging up the backyard yeah. with his kid. And he's like acting crazy. His wife shows up there and she's horrified that he's involving the kid. And he looks at her and says, it's okay. Body's not over there. Like he's letting yeah. his kid participate, but he's not going to subject his kid to seeing a body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... But when they argue, that's when it like it kind of just goes out of the real. The realism escapes me. And, like it just seems like it's just Kevin Bacon acting in moments like that for me. A couple of the set pieces that I think I want to talk about. We talked about briefly at the beginning the hypnotism sequence. Yeah. Picture yourself in a theater, and the David Cap sort of takes you into his little mental trip. It's mm -hmm. it's almost like a hallucinogenic sequence almost at first, but uh, it really takes you into the hypnotism really well, and uh, you know. Uh, you buy it, yeah. And I think that's a tricky thing to do. It's a common scene where you, you know, they have the séance or they put somebody into a trance, and it's a really tricky transition mm -hmm. to, you know, now they're in the trance. And I don't really, not off the top of my head, can I think of a better example of it being executed? Oh yeah. Than I, here. <laughs> after watching that, that's what I when I trying to go to bed at night, fall asleep at night, and my mind is like racing with things in my head. Yeah. That's what I picture is being in a movie theater and the screen like opening up to be this wide like so I uh, I don't I didn't the first time I watched the film I didn't necessarily remember that as being part of the film but I just remember that as a thing to remember so that when I need to focus or calm my mind yeah it was so better that, and then the way they just they uh, they filmed it and shot it it just looks it's great yeah I I really like that sequence and I, like I say I really like Ileana Douglas mm -hmm. a lot in it um, and when he comes when he <laughs> shows up at her apartment again demanding her that she unplug him or close whatever door she opened and she's all like amazed that this actually worked <laughs> it's sort of like getting along with her brother-in-law for the first time in her life because she thinks this is so awesome yeah. great scene um i also wanted to mention just some of the boo moments in the like the haunting stuff in the house the mm -hmm. first time he sees the ghost in the living room oh yeah I jump. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll watch it. I rewind. I think everybody rewinds it to watch it again and go, yeah. how did they get <laughs> Boo. in there? <laughs> yeah. And a uh, little thing, like the scene where the wife's uh, filling the tub and you see the ghost put her hand into the water. And cools. And it. then the water turns ice cold. Yeah. Uh, nice little touches like that. Now, here's my question, though. She, if, if it's the role of the ghost to try and isolate... Kevin Bacon's character so that she can kind of tell her story by drawing him in through whatever the music because that, that scene directly goes into that scene where he's in, in the, on the main floor and he's got the headphones he keeps on. on hearing bits of painted black yeah so he uh, so 
if the goal is to get his attention, isolate him, why does the ghost turn the water ice cold? And why does she go for the, for the TV like and turns the channels? Like I don't understand those kind of choices with the ghost because it doesn't really influence. Kind of goes counter to what. I think she uses different tacks for each of them. With the little boy, uh, she seems to be able to have full-on conversations, but uh, like the little yeah. boy seems to directly interact with her, but yeah. she doesn't. Like they don't believe the parents aren't going to believe the little boy. Yeah. When she realizes that the husband can see her. Then she starts acting aggressively towards the husband. Yeah. And when that's not working for her, then she tries as a last ditch to the wife. And some of those are a little bit creepier because she's having to physically try to express herself. Yeah. So that scene where she chills the bathtub water or that utterly chilling moment where she possesses the son and says, mm-hmm. you know, don't talk to the boy, talk yeah. to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was just a real, like, ooh, yikes. <laughs> uh, and uh, even if she was just earnestly trying to say, I was murdered in your house, please, you know, mm-hmm. solve my, my death. Uh, obviously, if you see your kids starting to talk like that or if the bathwater suddenly turns cold, It'll just be terrifying and you'll flee. Yeah. Right? In a way, yeah. I kind of like that approach because it's like the ghost is just trying to communicate, but as a result, she's terrifying everybody in mm-hmm. the house, <laughs> except for the little boy <laughs> who thinks it's just, you know, another another day. Uh, so I guess what we're saying here overall is that I really, really like the movie. And there's some genuinely chilling moments. And I think so, yeah. I, uh-huh. I think that right down to the end credits... Uh, it, it was very popular to end your movies with a big boo moment scare, and still is, you know. Uh, it's a popcorn sort of environment for a horror movie. Yeah. You know? Always leave them on a laugh, they say, with a comedy, with a horror movie. You know, Carrie's hand comes out of the grave, or Jace, the boy Jason jumps out of the water, or whatever. Yeah. And I really like the track that this movie takes on that, you know. It's a happy ending, but they still decide they need to move out of their house. Their neighbors were a little bit crummy, and their house was very haunted, and was kind of destroyed in the attempt to find the body. So they're moving away, and there's sort of a happy shot of Kevin Bacon and a happy shot of his wife. And they go to the back seat, and the little boy's looking at all the houses, and all of these voices start cycling through his head, and he just puts his hands over his ears... It's like not exactly a boo moment, but is it a happy ending? You're just like, what's the world like for this poor little yeah. boy? And, uh, yeah. Big thumbs up on Stir of Echoes. <laughs> I felt uh, some of the transitions kind of jarring. It seemed like they were trying to end the scene. They didn't know how to end the scene, so they're like, when the tailgate scene, there's just like this uh, where he's first asking the other guys about the girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, her disappearance, and it's like, I think it was just after the game, must have been just after the football. some tailgate that's going on within the whole neighborhood. So they get out the information that they need within the scene, and then the way they transition out of it was just like a guy's throw a ball into their, where they're standing, and they all pile up, and they're like, oh, boys will be boys, or something like that, and then it cuts. Just had some weird, like... Why is that scene there? Unless yeah. there's something important to the Yeah, plot. and I think there was something important in there, and they're asking the questions, but just their way of transitioning out of it just seemed like it was like, uh, and look over there. It didn't seem immediately relevant at the time yeah. that, the, that he was so into the fact that his boy was a star athlete. It didn't seem relevant to the story. And as it turns out, it, it, it was later. Mm-hmm. But especially on first pass in the movie, it just seemed like... There's yeah. some more getting to know you sequences when, you know, the intrigue seems to have already started. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a sequence with the the babysitter 
where she has a little freak out yeah. uh, and believes that the little boy has been talking to her dead sister. And uh, there's this whole sort of false kidnapping sequence, yeah. which, um, yeah, I, of all the sequences in the movie, I think it was probably my least favorite, just because I didn't believe her that that's the the track that she would take. Even if that she, she believed this, that children. she would just take that little kid out. She wouldn't, like, immediately call her parents or call the police and have them come to the house. Like, the fact that the babysitter decided to take the kid and run yeah. uh, just seemed like the movie needed a big sort of sequence early in the movie, so they kind of conjured Again, one yeah. a little bit. Well, they also had to kind of start to give him his, his abilities to see things. Like, it started with, like, the red flashes, which yeah. kind of guided him where he needed to go, and then it... So he needed that... Uh, the harnessing of his powers, but yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're just having her run off. There, there are more logical steps that she would have taken mm-hmm. than to, than to kidnap the boy to like a, yeah. a place like it wasn't, wasn't, uh, was it the, uh, the train, the train station. station yeah. yeah. But I think that's where her mother, where her mom works, which just yeah, happened yeah. to work out. But it's like, you have to know that if you're kidnapping a kid and you're going to a train station, people are going to be like, think you're alarms are going yeah. off really loud. I would think so. Especially when you could have, you know, yourself or you have your phone, they're not a cell phone, but you could phone, Anybody. Yeah. There's a great imagination into the story. Uh, mm-hmm. And as, like I said, I think that it definitely influenced Stephen King and uh, other authors. And I think it uh, does credit to the uh, source material. What I do like about it, too, is that, I mean, uh, when we're comparing it to, uh, again, to The Shining, is he doesn't necessarily, he's going crazy, but doesn't necessarily tip that point. He's actually vindicated and right yeah. at the end. And... Uh, so I think it's also it's uh, I think I like that part about it that it's different than obviously than the shining, but also that it's pretty much like a detective story. He's trying to put the pieces together to try and. I think find that this. the major difference between the Echoes and the Shining is that in Echoes, the ghost's intentions are somewhat pure. I mean, I think she gets mm-hmm. frustrated and acts out, and that causes terror in the household. But mm-hmm. she wants to be recognized and noticed first of all, mm-hmm. and then she wants her body to be found, mm-hmm. and then she wants to tell them who killed her. Mm-hmm. And she's sort of stuck there until somebody figures this out. So she's desperate and she comes off as scary. Mm-hmm. Whereas the entities that we're dealing with in The Shining are malevolent. Yes. They're evil and they see a weak man and they see a way to exploit him so that they can gain access to his super psychic child. Yeah. Uh, but that's, of course, a discussion for another day. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of Stir of Echoes and... Um, like I say, it's the, it got lost in the traffic of really great movies yeah. in 1999. Seek it out because uh, it's it's solid and it still remains solid today. As you can see, the housework has been rather neglected since the servants disappeared almost a week ago. You mean they just vanished into thin air? Perhaps I should introduce you to the children. How do you do, children? I'm your new nanny. Are you going to leave us too? Should I leave you? The others said they wouldn't, but they did, and then it happened. My children sometimes have strange ideas, but you mustn't pay any attention. Children will be children. Why do you open the curtains? The specter. You told your brother that there was someone else in the room. There was. That'll do, Anne. I've seen them too. Sometimes the world of the dead gets mixed up with the world of the living. Um, I'm gonna murder this gentleman's name. Alejandro Amenabar, 
I'm going to say. Sounds good. I'm not going to. I want you to look like he is the Alejandro Amenabar. He is the writer and director of the others. This is uh, a very sort of classical gothic Mm. ghost story, and it stars Nicole Kidman, who I've got to say I never quite know how to take. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes I think she's amazing, and sometimes she really nails down a chalkboard uh, for me. (laughs) And it really just uh, depends on the day, depends on the movie. I just don't know what I'm going to get from her. I'm happy to report in this case, I think she gives a really strong performance. And I think it's both a difficult role to play as far as, like, how to hold the cards and when, what to show when. And, uh, just because she's in such a constant manic state of misery to keep that engaging, Mm -hmm. uh, for the entire movie, uh, is a real feat. Um, she plays a a mother whose two children have a, a, a rare condition which involves being basically allergic to sunlight. If they get in the sun, they break out in hives, and they stop breathing, and it can kill them. So she lives in a beautiful mansion, which she is forced to cover all of the windows, seal all of the doors, uh, so that no nobody can accidentally open a door. And, and Yeah, there's a series of uh, patterns and locks. And yeah, stuff. she's got to lock every door behind her, and she's got to keep everything safe. And this is all motivated on being a, a good mom. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it does two things. It makes the house creepy and atmospheric, yeah. and it shuts. It further shuts her off from the outside world, more so than she would have otherwise been. She can't take the kids to the park or to the yeah, town or to shutting. the store. They are stuck in this little place and living this life in these rooms, and that's what they've got until Dad comes home from the war. Mm-hmm. And one day, they start hearing voices in some of the rooms. What do you think of the others? Um, well, I like the others, but, and this is, I, I've, when trying to watch these again, I try and see if I can watch them just as films now, rather than films that have been influenced by Previous something that's things. come before. Okay. And it's hard for me because The Sixth Sense, and I want to give it, you know, hype it up too much, but it started making me look at films, especially like uh, kind of ghost films or whatnot, and kind of analyze them and go, okay... Not, or you know, and, and critique them as I'm watching them a bit more. So I sit there and I go, "Why are we filming this at this time period? Why is this important?" Mm-hmm. And uh, so as I go through the others, uh, I really I do enjoy it, but I keep thinking that no, there's something that's off right away. And then I start to think like, "Why are the ghosts all of a sudden just turning up?" You know, like there's been no report of them before this time. Haven't she hasn't seen the ghosts or heard the ghosts before? The kids have. Kids have spoken with them? The well, uh, the kids hear the ghost sounds first. They hear them first, and they start drawing pictures and showing her evidence. Yes, it's not until again, like I say, she starts hearing things and seeing things herself that she takes them seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, it's really hard to convince somebody of these things. Yeah, and then there's the, uh, I mean, they add the creepiness of these people that are are coming in as servants that you don't know if she doesn't know if she can trust them. Yeah, um, and then she finds the book of uh, book of the. The it's post-mortem photography. It's basically a, uh, it was very popular in the 19th century when somebody in the family was to die. Part of a way to memorialize them would to be posed with the corpse. Yeah, it's very creepy stuff. You know, eyes open or closed, and uh, sometimes you know, basically pose them like living dolls. Yeah. So you have one more keepsake of your child <laughs> who died weird. of tuberculosis. Yeah. You know, it's well. creepy shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but. Uh, 
people's attitude towards death was different than yeah. it was in that today. That is for sure. Absolutely. And to find that in your house would be, yeah, creepy. Why is this book of dead people in my yeah. house? <laughs> so there were, there were just sort of little things that said, okay, you have to, I just have to watch this movie a bit more closely. I just can't sit back and just enjoy it for the story that it is. I have to sit here. It's kind of like when you, I don't know, when you start to learn music or learn the guitar and you go, oh, I wonder how, I wonder how I can play that, and you realize that learning how to play an instrument has kind of ruined music for you. Right. Instead of being able to just sit back and enjoy it and let it all come in, now you go, oh, what would I, how would I do that? What would I, so you're, you almost instantly go to analyze something before, and I think that's what happened after, after watching The Sixth Sense. So this one, I, I wasn't as jacked about the, the ending. I thought the ending was heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, but when I found out what the, the, the twist. catch was, the twist was, it wasn't, shocking right. I'll agree with you to the point where I saw the twist coming uh, okay. a, a long ways away you did eh? uh, whereas that wasn't the case especially the first time I saw The Sixth Sense yeah. I genuinely uh, the gotcha got me and yeah. bravo to that um, but I think you're right because of the movies that came before this you find yourself looking for the twist ending Yeah. for me it's when Christopher Eccleston's character mm-hmm. shows up Yeah. Uh, her husband returns from the out of the fog from the war and he's acting completely zombified and crazy. Yeah. And uh, he, he seems really saddened uh, by being re, 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 this reunion yeah. with his family. seems to break his heart. Yeah. And then he goes back to the front lines like of the war as if that's a, a, a better option for him. And he disappears. Yeah. At that point, I said, okay, they're all ghosts. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I was right. They, Nicole Kidman, the kids, and the servants are all ghosts. The sounds they're hearing are the living people who are moving into the house. Mm. That's what I think is really clever about the movie, is that when you go back and you look at it, what seem like really aggressive maneuvers by a malevolent spirit, the removing of all the curtains, Mm -hmm. that will kill her children. That will kill her children. And she wakes up one morning and someone has removed (laughs) all of the curtains, like... Oh my God! The stakes of that are great. Yeah, uh, and uh, people just moved into the house and said, "Why are all these curtains here? Let's let some light and air into our new home." Yeah, you know. And then, but yeah, uh, uh, and uh, so it's more how they execute the twist yeah. than the twist itself. And as far as how long have they been there? What's this? The I honestly think we start the moment after she pulled the trigger yeah, on I think herself. So too. Uh, that bang that wakes her up was the bang of her pulling the trigger and killing herself. She'd been locked and lonely in that house for so long and with those kids for so long that she snapped and Mm -hmm. she smothered her children and took her own life. Mm -hmm. And when she wakes up and she's a ghost, she feels like that didn't happen. Uh, That was just a bad dream. I didn't do that. God has given me a second chance to be a good mother. And the horrible sort of hellish thing about this is that in the end, she is still trapped in that house with those kids. The only win that those ghosts have is that the kids get to play in the sunlight for the first time ever. But uh, they do seem still doomed, much like the staff seem doomed and trapped in that house. Mm-hmm. As much as they were when they were alive, they are continue to be so uh, in their death. And that does sort of lend a somber, sort of tragic... I think... I think it's left open that uh, Christopher Eccleston... Eccleston. Eccleston, I think it's... Uh, they, the the servants do mention that sometimes you're just not ready to know or uh, know exactly that you're dead yet, yeah. but it'll come. So there is some comfort too in the fact that he will eventually realize 
that he's meant for probably, I mean, maybe probably going back and forth between the two. See, the way I saw it is that he knew he was a ghost. He died on the front lines of the war, and he was sort of in that middle ground, too. And he found his way home, and when he found that she had killed his kids Mm. and herself, that was so miserable to him, too. It was almost worse to discover that, Right. right? So he can't even deal with it, and he goes back to whatever you know, horrible war landscape he was haunting yeah. previously. It's because that was <laughs> so much is left for you this is left for you to sort of fill mm-hmm. in, but <clears throat> the production design of the movie is oh, great. Yeah, um, I believe Fiona Flanagan plays the sort of head of the new staff yeah. that shows up. Um and she has this really uh great sort of line where she seems really wholesome and nice and and, and pleasant. But you know that she's holding a secret, <laughs> like you just know she's yeah. not telling you everything too. Uh, so one time you'd have, you know, she looks like your granny, would give you a cup of tea, and it seems like it's just a charming old old bell. Uh, and then the other hand, you know, yeah, she's she's not telling you everything. Yeah. That's a nice fine line to walk, and I like that performance. Uh, I think overall this movie works really well. Um, if if anything hurts it, it's the familiarity of the story, the fact that things came before. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the moments that come out are very good, like the like the piano being played and she's trying to get into the you know into the room and then her, the 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 uh, ghost or the the woman, the, the woman yes the yeah. seance woman uh, getting into the body of her daughter. Those moments are great, but there's a lot of kind of takes its time with some stuff, and I just don't get drawn in as much. I think maybe because it is such a static location. I mean, well, but I guess you know session nine is like that too. But maybe I just didn't feel that I knew that building that she's in, the mansion, because it's so dark. I, it all just felt like one big dark room yeah. all the time. Well, it's sort of the conceit that the, the movie paints itself into. Like I say, she has to cover all the windows, and she has to yeah. close all the doors. And on one hand, that gives you great spooky dark atmosphere. But on the other hand, it's just uniformly dark and yeah. candle lit. It's basically an entire movie lit by candles. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, for a ghost story, that works for, for my money. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and like I say, I think Nicole Kidman is very strong here. Uh, yes. It, it, like, when she finally has that moment of realization and her children embrace her. And again, that's a curious thing, too, because they realize what happened then, too. Their mother killed them. <laughs> and then they run and hug her to comfort her when she realizes it. Um, yeah. And the kids, the performances from both of those kids they're, they're are really good. fantastic. Yeah. Um, and again, the great reversal of scenes where, uh, in the, the little boy who's living in the house has the misfortune to be sleeping in the same room that these two ghost kids are. Yeah. And when these two ghost kids have this horrifying thing that there's a, a boy sleeping in the same bed with them and he keeps going and opening the curtain, it's so horrifying when you hear their side of it. Yeah. But when you look at the movie again, look at it from the point of view of this little kid in the bed. He keeps going and closing the curtains, and the curtains keep on closing themselves back. (laughs) You know, like, yikes! (laughs) Yikes! This is great ghost story stuff. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Again, it's... They've taken it from a different angle, which then it it immediately kind of perks my attention, as you said, with uh, the things that have come before. But it's still solid. You know the accident up there? Yeah. A lady. She broke her neck. Oh, my God. Where is she? Standing next to my window. You have a secret, but you don't want to tell me. I see dead people walking around like regular people. I don't see anything. 
sure they're there. me to do things for them. I think that they know that you're one of these very rare people who can see them, so you need to help them. What if they don't want to help? I don't think that's the way it works. I can help for sure. Not every gift. Is anyone there? It's a blessing. The sixth sense. Please make them be. I'm working on it. Okay, um, M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> um, a lot of people believe that uh, this movie, The Sixth Sense, was his first film. It's not. He actually had a couple of movies before. This was his first high-profile, big-budget Hollywood film, and it was definitely the one that put him on the map. After The Sixth Sense came out, basically, as far as the media was concerned, he was the new Hitchcock. Yeah. And he tried to do everything he could to sort of live up to that, as far as releasing a, a thriller a year and even putting himself in the movies and small cameos. Um, but I will say that... Although I don't think all of the movies he's made subsequently are bad, uh, he has never come remotely close to making a film anywhere near the quality yeah. of The Sixth Sense subsequently. He kind of has gone from Hollywood's uh, golden boy to Hollywood's punching bag about, <laughs> uh, about 15 years. Which is too years. bad, yeah. So uh, that's too bad. But uh, I think that The Sixth Sense deserves its reputation. I'm happy that it was nominated for Academy Awards. And... Um, yeah, it's a strong central performance from Bruce Willis, which, you know, Bruce Willis seems to do a couple movies a year, uh, whether or not he's awake for them or not. <laughs> <laughs> so good for him for being a working actor, but uh, sometimes he phones it in and sometimes he shows up to work. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, he showed up to work for The Sixth Sense. Well, I get a sense, it's, sense that it's from reading, just reading the script and going... Well, I think this guy's got it figured out. Yeah, he knows he knows what he's doing, and it's clear, and it's it's a great, a great story. Yeah. Um, I think it's too bad for Night Shyamalan that he kind of got into that I have to have twist, sort of thing for a while, and then I think maybe that was there were expectations on him that he couldn't do anything but something that was going to shock you. In the yeah, end. he started to believe his own press a little bit, and yeah, got it. which I, don't know. I would have loved to have just seen a, just a regular story. You can, you don't have to, you know. Well, I'll go and see a movie though, if it's I, different I, than what you did the first time. I got to the point where it's like, okay, fine, you're still a technically good director, just stop writing your scripts. But mm -hmm. he hasn't written the last few scripts, and it's still been yeah. pretty poor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, maybe I'm in the minority, but again, I don't want to base this review on Shyamalan. No, I exactly. Uh, the basic story concerns a, a little boy uh, played by Haley Joel Osment, uh, and this performance has been greatly lauded, and it was nominated for an Academy Award, and he is very solid, a very rock-solid child actor in, in this role. Um, he lives with his uh, mom, uh, played by Tony Collette, who I think is fantastic in this movie, yeah. um, and he has a terrible secret that he's having a hard time dealing with. Uh, he can't even share it with his beloved mother because he wants to keep that relationship friendly and sweet. Uh, but he sees dead people. He really sees dead people everywhere he goes. He is just terrified by it. And uh, he needs help. And that's where child psychologist uh, Malcolm Crow steps in. That's an unfortunate movie he, name, yeah. Mr. Crow, but uh, there it is. Uh, and he shows up to help this little boy deal with his problem. Um, it's kind of an episodic movie. This is sort of what I like about it. It's sort of this little mini adventure happens and this little adventure happens mm -hmm. and this little, but it's all in the overarching goal as to try and help this little boy deal with his gift. 
Uh, or is it a gift, I guess is the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you land on the sixth sense? Uh, it's that one where it, uh, someone's, you know, it gets hyped up huge. <laughs> Everyone says this movie is, it cha- like it's, it'll get you. Yeah. And I know there are people that still figured it out. Mm-hmm. Or, th- or at least they said they did. Yeah. They like to sound really smart. But uh, <laughs> I didn't. And even after all the hype, I go into it and just think, well, it can't possibly be as good as what people are saying. And it's the one that lives up to it yeah. for me. Um, just because you think you're watching one story and it's another com- completely other story that's going on at the same time that's been there the whole time. Yeah. And uh, even, I think, Shyamalan himself was like, uh, he was just panicking, shitting his pants because he's like... When he says, I see dead people, they're going to be like, of course, Bruce Willis, they're going to yeah. get it even like before that. They're From a writer's standpoint, I get that. Because yeah. like, he feels like he's shouting the answer to the audience's yeah. face. But when you're in it, you're in it. And I think the reason that the twist works, and we'll, we'll get to the twist and talk about it. I think the reason that the twist works really well is that the movie would work completely and effectively without it. Yeah. Even if they didn't give us that amazing twist at the end, it would have still been a completely satisfying, good ghost movie with some good boo moments and good characters and strong performances. Mm-hmm. It's just when they give us that extra little beat at the end, which was like, oh, that's bravo. That's yeah. where you take it up to the next level. And that wasn't like something where he filmed it and he said, you know what would be cool? If we just made him dead at the end. <laughs> yeah, no. It was like, no, he planned it from the start because of all Meticulously. of Meticulously. Yeah. Uh, when I got when I first saw the movie, I was like, they, they tricked me. And yeah. I was like, I can't believe that. And uh, when I watched it again, not only did I, you know, yeah, they definitely got me. I was like... Yeah, I can't believe that I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I, I can't believe one of the first things that they show us in this movie is Bruce Willis being shot by uh, one of the new kids on the block. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you're watching it at the start and his name comes up, you're like, Donnie Wahlberg's in this movie, that's awesome! Yeah. And then you watch the movie and you go, wasn't Donnie Wahlberg in this movie? It's like, yeah, he, he was. <laughs> he plays this emaciated kid who uh, shows up in Bruce Willis's bathroom in his underwear and shoots him. It's an amazing one-scene role, mm-hmm. and apparently he went totally method on it and, like, starved himself and stayed up all night in a park running from ghosts to prepare himself for this one strong scene. And you know what? He brings it. He's very good in that scene. But, yeah, he shoots Bruce Willis. That's one of the first things we see. And then we fast-forward a year later to this little boy. And, Yeah. uh, yeah, so I don't know how... I don't know what magic was worked there that made me sort of, you know... I think there's always that that was coming, but... As soon as you see him again, it's like he survived. Yeah. Well, and there's a couple of scenes like that I was you almost going to bullshit. It's like, he, he, didn't he talk to Conan, Tony Collette? No, he didn't. Yeah. He was in the room with Tony Collette on several Maybe occasions, but they you. never say a word to each yeah. other. Um, he goes to the dinner with his wife, but uh, she doesn't speak to him. At the yeah. time, you think it's because she's upset with him. He goes but to she's upset the... because it's her anniversary. Her husband died, and this is where she used to have her anniversary dinner with her husband. Yeah. Like, it works completely. Absolutely. Uh, the whole business with him always going to the basement door and it being locked. Uh, and then we find out later that she's actually put a table in front of the door. Like, she hates that door because that's where he would always go to work and ignore her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Uh, all these great little notions work. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the actress who plays his wife. Olivia. Oh, yeah. Olivia Williams? Uh, that sounds probably about right. I'll say Olivia Williams. It's a tricky role, anyway, uh, and Tony Collette has to play this as well, but, like, where, uh, 
you're in a room with Bruce Willis. You're doing a scene sort of with Bruce Willis, but you don't have to, you don't acknowledge Bruce Willis at all, mm-hmm. you know. In Tony Collette's scene, her focus is her little boy, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so this is a great little game that they're, all of the cast and the director is playing with the audience the whole movie. And the fact that nobody winks, that nobody, you know, exactly. takes their hand is kind of a miracle, you know. Well, I think that, yeah, that just speaks to the, how good they are. That whole movie, like, when I'm, and when I kind of compare it with the other movies here, like, that's a solid three right there. Uh, Bruce Willis is known for doing, he'll do something like the, the tough guy movies, but he also will come out with ones that you're just like, what? Yeah. And because he'll pick something that's great, like 12 Monkeys. It's yeah. like completely different performance than what he gives in anything else that he's done. He's more kind of quiet and reserved in that movie, whereas Brad Pitt, like, does the opposite. He's yeah. more kind of in your face. And, uh, so he'll come out with these movies that you're just, you think, is this just going to be like another Die Hard or is this going to be something good? And he'll, He'll keep switching it around. Um, plus, Tony Collette's someone I've never seen before, but you can just tell in this movie that this she's bought into what Shyamalan's written, yeah. what he's talking about, and what they're trying to do, and she understands how to convey that, with, like you said, in those scenes, with 100%, I think, just... She's unbelievable. She deserved an Oscar for yeah. that performance. Oh, I, I think she is seen alone. just heartbreaking. I mean, her son is in a terrible, heartbreaking position, but yeah. her position is, it, it, like... Not only is her son going through hell and she knows it, she seems feels utterly helpless on what yeah. to do about it. And anytime she reaches out for help, people basically accuse her of abusing her son. Yeah. And uh, that scene, uh, sort of really what you think is the climax of the movie, and emotionally I think kind of is the climax yeah. of the movie, where he finally tells the secret to his mom that he can see dead people, and she believes him. Yeah is so amazing. Tony Collette is so fantastic in yeah. that scene. Because, it, I mean, in a way she's talking to her son as an adult for the first time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she's connecting with it. And, and realizing the size of the adversary that she and her son has been dealing with. But also feeling the relief of actually knowing what the problem is. That's yeah. sort of this is sort of me when I say with any project or any, you know, stage in life, there is going to be a crisis. Um, in a way, I take comfort when the crisis arrives because I no longer have to await the yeah. crisis. Yeah, you can, you can, work <laughs> you to can fix deal it. with the crisis now <laughs> that you know it's here. It's the anticipation and not mm. knowing what it is. And uh, in a way, as horrifying as that moment is for her, it's also a wonderful moment for her as well. And, you know, there's no you know, rainbows and happy endings necessarily. He's still going to see crazy fucked up shit, but he's not alone. Yeah. Between Malcolm telling him that talking to the ghosts will help and having somebody who he lives with who knows what he's going through and he can talk to, yeah. he'll be okay. So like I say, the movie, like right there, has its, all the emotional payoff I could have wanted. Yeah. And then we find out that Bruce Willis has been a ghost the whole time yeah. and we didn't know. <laughs> Bravo. And then the way they reveal it, too, is just really, really nice. Really, like, it's the ring falling out of her hand, and it's just that little moment there. And all of a sudden, he can see his breath. Yeah. And he relives every conversation he had with Cole. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. They even do give us a clip show of everything that we've seen in the movie, just in case you're that guy in the theater who says, Bullshit! (laughs) (laughs) And, like, I would have been tempted to. Like, the first time it happened, I was genuinely taken so I surprised. And that's why I think this movie has to rank so high for me, is that it's like, I was genuinely taken. 
Yeah, it's a great story, nice and surprise. the the three of them, like Haley Joel Osment's just adorable. So I, I, I probably wasn't hard for Tony Collette to just be in love with this kid because <laughs> yeah. he's just awesome. But he, him, like I like watching it again. I tried to watch it. Can I knowing exactly what the ending is? Can I watch it and appreciate it? And so what can I see from it that might be different or something that I missed? Or you know, totally just analyzing it a lot more and watching Osmond when he comes in, every everything he does. It makes sense yeah. both ways. If you think he's just this timid little awkward kid at the start, or that he is actually, especially at the start, afraid of Bruce Willis because he realizes that Bruce Willis is a ghost. He's following him. Yeah. Or how about when he comes home from school and he's sitting in his living room? Yeah, with his mom and <laughs> the step forwards and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it all works. Over and above all of this great things that we've said, there are some genuinely good spooky boo moments mm-hmm. to be found in here as well. The little sick girl who shows up in yeah. his tent. Once again, the classic case of the horror movie establishing a safe haven for a character yeah. and then utterly destroying it. <laughs> I like. I felt violated that yeah. she showed up in his tent. Yeah. Like he had this one place that he'd filled with religious icons that he'd covered himself, you know, and that like was going to be his safe haven and. She just shows up right there. It's just terrifying. Up. <laughs> yeah, the little boy saying, "Hey, you want to see my dad's gun?" Yeah, but like, there's some really good like boo moments to be found throughout the movie as well. Like, it pays off in yeah. that respect. The drawers and the, the uh, cupboards. I think that the Sixth Sense will kind of be recognized as a classic horror movie, and more so than a lot of quote unquote classic horror movies think it kind of earns it um whatever you can say about m night Shyamalan and his subsequent choices and the rest of his catalog it's hard to say anything bad about the sixth sense and whatever you say about bruce willis being a a difficult personality or an actor who sometimes will sleepwalk through a role he showed up here and uh there's very little bad to say about this movie um i think the only thing i could think of in my notes about it that I, i kind of registered as a bit of a negative for me and this is something that you'll see in all of Shyamalan's movies especially when the kids is or, or children are involved yep. is the whisper talking there are entire scenes <laughs> there are entire scenes Matthew through the movie there's entire scenes <laughs> where both characters just whisper dialogue to each other oh yeah like this <laughs> and it goes on for a really long time and it's like there's just something really once you become conscious of it like once you're aware of it it becomes really distracting and it, it I think it, it gets exacerbated the, the movie he followed up this with was uh, Unbreakable Unbreakable yeah so he had Bruce Willis again and he, he also had a, a relationship with a, a sad eyed little kid mm-hmm. who would cry and ask his dad <laughs> why why do you have to be a superhero why can't you just be a normal dad <laughs> he had this template that he would go back to again and again and again at least this is the first time we were seeing it here but uh, and as far as I can tell always trust the kid whatever the kid says no matter how crazy it is he's telling, telling the truth, the truth. Yeah. like the water although with signs you kind of go doesn't your doesn't the atmosphere kind of have a lot of moisture in it wouldn't that yeah. what like, if it was raining yeah, yeah. yeah. 70% of our planet is water <laughs> yeah but then we move on to the happening and lady in the water and then it's just like a, it's a stupidity contest <laughs> lady in the water I took is kind of just a kids fun movie <laughs> anyway uh, uh, <laughs> by all means enjoy the sixth sense mm-hmm. uh, the other Shyamalans we'll maybe have to discuss on another day oh.
And so it was that Matthew Burgess and I have reviewed six ghost movies, and it is that time where we get to rank them. And uh, uh, this was a tough list of movies, because like I said, I liked all of them, so um, usually I find that the number one and the number six at least tend to announce themselves. This one took a little bit of humming and hawing <laughs> for me, so yeah. uh, where did you come out on this? What was your least favorite of these movies and why? I think, well, when, I, when I'm looking at these films, uh, I kind of tried to... I, I would think about, you know, is this, with Session 9, is this classify as a, as a horror, or as a, as a ghost, ghost, ghost movie or not? And, uh, um, and then I kind of just thought, you know what, I should be going with how it makes me feel rather than that. And I know that's more subjective, so it'll probably take us in far different... Reasons, but I think that's sort of the purpose of the, the movies, are to make you feel something and to get freaked out and scared. And so I think that that's kind of the way I ranked mine. Was more. I, I think we agree that these are pretty good movies. If you like mm. ghost stories, you can like them. Yeah. Uh, my idea of ranking them is, I don't care if we agree necessarily. Yeah. Disagree. I don't think any big scraps are going to break. <laughs> yeah, down. exactly. But and then we can be wrong. I get so a feeling like, like if you tell me what you think of the Sixth Sense, so I really like the Sixth Sense. Well, so mm. do I. Well, end of conversation, right? Yeah. But if if you rank these six movies. From your least favorite uh, to most, picture, I feel yeah. like I know a little bit more where you're coming yeah. from in movies. Like, so if I see another ghost movie, I will be able to say, "Oh, I bet you Matt will like this." <laughs> <laughs> you're probably better at the Netflix. Yeah, <laughs> Thank <For> you. <laughs> I don't know if that's a left-handed compliment or <laughs> not. <laughs> I've had some bad luck with them. Uh, so not oh, we're, we're rolling. So uh, for me, the number six would be the others. Okay, just doesn't move enough for me. I don't get again. It was it said it kind of get got stuck with the uh, I've seen uh, the sixth sense, so now I'm just hyper aware of things. But there were just things that kind of stuck out as red flags. Maybe you say there's just something. There's going to be a twist, and uh, it just didn't pay off as well for me. Uh, the, the emotional stuff I thought was was great. I thought that. As the, oh, everyone was good. Uh, I did think Nicole Kidman stood out amongst them, but uh, I didn't think that the rest made it that brought it up to that next level. So that one is probably my lowest one. Okay, fair enough. And I keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, number five. Number five is The Haunting. I'm afraid. Okay. Um, I did enjoy it, especially going back to watch it a second time. But still, it, uh, emotionally, I kept thinking like I, I didn't get sucked in. The music drew me out, brought me out of it, and I know it was uh, you know of the time, but just that. Uh, the house to me was seemed to be more ominous, and when it, it sort of felt like a at times just this big, you know, the building was big, but the, the music didn't quite fit and bring in an eerie quality that this house was somewhat menacing. And you know, how much does it have an influence over her already and stuff? It just kind of would shoot out with this massive amount of music, which made me say, which said to me, "I'm in a, I'm watching a scary movie. Be scared." So. Uh, and the fact that it was, you, they could have gone colored, but they chose stylistically to go with the black and white. I do appreciate the uh, the shadows and what they can get with the lighting effect. But again, it, again, it, it's like a hyper awareness and saying, "Look how good we are at doing this." Yeah, we're not actually trying to make you bring you into these people's story, but to say, "Like, look how great we can make this sort of look stylistically, visually." So that one ranked number five for me. Uh, then I went to the entity. Was number four, and it's. It's too bad because I thought it was actually a really good premise. I liked the premise, and it was like, the, how much can you believe? Yeah. The ending kind of just wasn't... It seemed like they needed to find a better ending, and they could have found a better ending, but it was just this weird sort of scientific yeah. freezing. If you're basing it on a true story, and that true story doesn't really have an ending, I guess you're kind yeah. of obligated to yeah. give us a Hollywood <laughs> ending. And, yeah. But it's unfortunate because you've kind of built up an interesting sort of uh, yeah. argument between the two. If I can't, you know, it's parapsychology. It's not an actual science. We can't... <laughs> So that one ranked, unfortunately, because I did like, again, I like the sort of the questions that it asked. 
Um, and some just how brutal, how realistic, and how uh, honest of a performance that that she gives, yeah. Barbara Hershey. But just to, when I mean, she's being beaten up by nothing. She yeah. has to make all those movements herself. Like she's technically a brave, incredible. a brave and very good performance. Yeah, yeah. I think she's great. Um, after that, it's uh, Stir of Echoes. Stir of Echoes. I like it. About, again, I always had this thing with Kevin Bacon that sometimes I just think like it's Kevin Bacon really trying to do something that's different than Kevin Bacon. But, yeah. And so, but I still think he was the most solid. The 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 trio dynamic of the, the husband, wife, and the kid I didn't think was as strong uh, as it or the casting. I don't think was very good. Um, and then just some of the editing seemed like some of the scenes were maybe moved around and stuff. Just the way their relationship seemed to flow through it. She didn't have a lot to do, but. There wasn't uh, just some just seemed weird to me in some of the transitions and choices. Um, so then my number two one would be session nine because uh, I think that all the way through it that was you're just kind of the mood is set from this building and uh, again the paranoia as we talked about but that these people are potentially doing things that are could could throw someone over the edge yeah and uh, and then someone something does happen and someone disappear something has gone over the edge yeah and as you find out that might be still within the building whatever it is and uh and that it does kind of uh balance on the line of is this a ghost story or is this a psychological thriller we never as you say never tip our hat either way the ambiguity so it's smart. is strong it's yeah. incredibly smart that way yeah. uh, some of the i give it some negatives of some of the way they get into dialogue or conversation seems a little bit forced as they're trying to give the history of the building and stuff, it just seems like some weird sort of... They and do now, some, some exposition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> some interesting stories. The exposition is really interesting, but it's just sort of a weird how it's like a transition into it. So it seemed like they have this great information. How can we build a scene around it to get that information out to make it seem real? But it doesn't, there's just some awkward moments in there. But what I love about it, too, is that it, uh, the, it's, again, it's all laid out there for you right from the start. And there are little uh, nuggets or anchors that he kind of leaves throughout, uh, whether it's the flowers that you see kind of in the corner of the room or the cookies that he's got on the side of his truck, those are all in the basket that he yeah. goes to take in. All of the groceries that he brought home with him. That's yeah. what he's been living on at night. Yeah, so these great little moments of that, that kind of stuff and not really knowing if, again, with Caruso, yeah. is he the one to be you know feared or worried about? Is he, was he doing what he's doing? What do they think you're, what they want you to think he's doing? Uh, so that ranked number two for me. And then the sixth sense just was number one. It right. was, I think it was, as smart, if not maybe smarter, as session nine. I don't know if the. I think Brad Anderson in session nine shows a lot of camera shots which were similar to. I think it was, you were saying Kubrick's kind of style, like yeah. long pans that would go from room to room. And so I think stylistically with the camera, I think he was doing some better things than maybe what Shyamalan was doing. But I think Shyamalan's story still told it really well, visually. But it's a great story, great actors. Great twist, and it doesn't have to even be a ghost movie. Well, I mean, it has to be a kid who's troubled by something. This just happens to be yeah. ghosts. But the the dynamics and the characterization, or the, you know, how they... Those three are solid, the story's solid, and the director knows what he's doing. Yeah. It takes up number one for me. Well, I'm not going to fight you with that list, but you're not wrong in there. Our lists are actually quite different. <laughs> but that's okay. I, like I said, I think we're agreed that these are all solid movies. Yeah, and that's that hard. So hard. Even with the ones that I have some problems with, I do think that there's something that gets under my skin. There's something in the entity that raises my hackles. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and like I say, the boldness of Barbara Hirsch's performance. 
cries out to be watched. Mm -hmm. So it's unfortunate that I actually put it at number six. Um, I think that from a concept level, it is probably as terrifying as anything in here. Mm -hmm. But as we discussed, uh, it's all sort of set up and no real kind of finish. It got two-thirds of a story here. And that Mm -hmm. two-thirds of the story is really scary. But... And she uh, carries it for a yeah. so I'll let you go. No, I'm just saying, uh, she does carry the movie completely, and like it's worth watching for that performance. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's a long, sort of languidly paced 80s sort of supernatural thriller, mm-hmm. and uh, most of the best payoffs happen in the first hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so something had to go on the bottom. That's where I put the yeah. entity. Uh, and again, I'm not dissuading anyone from watching it. I'm just where I've been. Number yeah. five is where I put the others. Um, and again, here's a movie that is haunted by the other movies that came before it. Mm-hmm. I think if you'd seen this before, you'd seen The Sixth Sense or the dozen other movies where the central character realizes that they're a ghost, uh, that maybe this would just knock you right over. Um, I think it's atmospheric. I think that the child, the kid actors in it are fantastic. Um, and uh, in a way, it's the most sort of classic ghost story that we have here as far as the stately manner and the sort of slow revelation. Um, very tragic story too. Like I said, it's it's a sad. So many ghost stories are actually essentially sad, tragic tales. Yeah. You know? Trying to and uh, sorry. That's okay. Please. <laughs> trying to uh, solve the riddle, the problem. What is yeah. what is going on? So they're trying to put the clues together. It's very very much like detective stories, which I think is. Usually a ghost just wants to talk to you, but, you yeah. know, usually you're too terrified to really engage in any sort of rational conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, number four is The Haunting, which surprises my... I surprised myself by ranking this one so low. I was like, I do have a lot of personal stock in it. Uh, it just chilled my blood as a child. I used to, I kind of thought anything that was black and white is old and it can't scare me. And this one's one of those ones that sort of uh, broke that riddle for me. You know, no, actually, uh, a good story is a good story is a good story. Mm-hmm. And I do think that The Haunting is that. I would just say, go into it knowing that you're watching a movie of a different time mm-hmm. and uh, take it in. Uh, I do think that the there's some good characters and there's a strong story being told here. Um and if this is your gateway drug to Shirley Jackson, so be it. She did write other things other than the lottery. So, <laughs> uh, so to number three, I have Stir of Echoes. Uh, again, Richard Matheson plus David Kep equals good. <laughs> well played. Um, it got buried in 1999, and I kind of keep waiting for it to kind of get rediscovered by the horror crowd. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Bacon, you're right. I, I'm not really sure how to take of him, but uh, usually with the thrillers, I will give him a pass, you know? I like Tremors. I like Flatliners. Uh, I thought he was a pretty good bad guy in that River Wild movie with Meryl Streep, yeah. you know? Like, uh, for some reason, when he when he gets his uh, his nasty on, he, I, can, I can bring him. So, uh, yeah, big fan of Stir of Echoes. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth seeking out. Controversially... I'm going to put The Sixth Sense at number two. Dun, dun, dun! That's huge. That's a huge switch. That's awesome. Um, well, again, this, these lists are personal to yeah. me. Uh, um, and really, everything that this movie sets out to accomplish, it does and exceeds and hits it right out of the park. Um, it's one of a very few horror movies that have been nominated for Oscars, and I do think that it will be remembered. It will be a classic horror film. Mm-hmm. And I do think it earns that reputation. 
The reason I'm going to put Session 9 at number one, though, uh, aside from the fact that I'm a big fan of Brad Anderson and my buddy Matt's worked with the <laughs> man, is that, like I said when I started the review, that atmosphere. I think that before the movie gets scary, the movie is scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost right away, almost within the first few frames of the movie. This movie is a slow crawl. I know people will 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 who haven't seen this movie will, and will hear it ranked on this list if they seek it out. Some people will just think I'm utterly crazy because the pacing of it is mm-hmm. slow. This is a movie that asks you to meet it halfway. You have to engage with the movie. But if this yeah. lights your imagination like it did with me, yeah. it will scare you. And this movie is genuinely unsettling oh, and yeah. scary. And it's uniformly ex- excellently executed. Yeah. Um, and I just, I want people to see it. I, I can't imagine that there's a person over the age of 20 that hasn't seen The Sixth Sense. <laughs> but uh, people need to seek out and Absolutely. see Session 9. Um, they used a real place and they sucked every inch of atmosphere they could out of it. And uh, in a genre that is obviously supernatural, it is unreal, this movie felt the most real. Mm -hmm. These characters felt like real people, and they felt, this felt like how you would react uh, to a horror situation. Yeah. We talked about the scene where uh, the Josh Lucas character goes back to the uh, Danvers place at night to get a stash of coins that he had found, and this was his retirement plan. He's not a believer in ghosts, and he's going back to this creepy building in the dead of night. And it's it's a it's a, a creepy errand that he has to run, but the payoff is huge. And he does probably what you or I would do mm-hmm. if we had that errand to run. He he gets the brightest flashlight he can, and he plugs in some music, and he goes in and uh, in there to get her done. And by shutting off your senses with the music. And giving yourself the limited perspective of just that shaft of light. Yeah. It's like, in a way, you'd think you're making it more terrifying. It's definitely more terrifying for me as a listener. (laughs) But at no point did I find myself saying, bullshit, he wouldn't do that. Yeah. You know, this isn't the woman walking slowly down the hallway in her panties saying, where's my boyfriend? You know? (laughs) Um, It's grounded in a reality. Uh, And... uh, I, I just, uh, it knocked me over the first time I saw it, and I wasn't expecting yeah. it to. Um, people may call bullshit that I put it number one over the sixth sense, but that's just how I feel, yeah. and I'm sticking to No, I think that's a great number one. <laughs> I didn't have the balls to do it. <laughs> but yeah, it doesn't, at, sorry, no. at, at no point does it ever ask you to um, uh, suspend your disbelief. Yeah. You could take it at face value if you wanted to, yeah. but uh, if you engage with it like I did, it will scare you. you yeah. know? There's no necessarily physical evidence that there's no door like in the haunting that's moving. Yeah. There's no uh, actual s- seeing the, the dead people. It's, I mean, if we can, if he's seen them, we can see it in his face that you know they don't. They don't we hear things, yeah. but we don't know if that's an actual sound or if yeah. that's a voice in a character's head, and uh, they ride that ambiguity just wonderfully. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a strong picture. Mm-hmm.
And so we come to the end of another episode of Rank and Review. And so your host and Roundup Canadian, Larry Parsons, as usual, thanks you so much for your time. If you would like to comment or critique or give any kind of feedback, you can do that at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook presence, but that is Rank and Review, not Rank and Review. So feel free to seek us out there, like us, comment, and by all means, spread the word. I hope you join us again for Rank and Review.